ZDog MD, the notorious VP Vinay Prasad. Uh, we are here to talk about. We're going to talk about double masking. <laughs> double masking. We're going <laughs> to. We're going to talk about a, an Atlantic article about children being the equivalent of a vaccinated grandma. Uh -huh. That we're going to talk about Marty McCary being censored uh -huh. by Facebook. Two we're, types of misinformation. There. Two, two types of misinformation, <laughs> right? We're going to talk about uh, the the curious case of Dr. Vivek Murthy in the Surgeon General's office, and we're going to talk about Dr. Seuss being canceled. Okay, this is the goal. This is the goal. It's been a long time, so we got a lot to catch up on. In the end, we're just going to talk about you know nerd stuff. But <laughs> so, dude, so. <laughs> Double masking. So it seems like this has become a cultural touchstone. Like everybody is obsessed with this. Like, well, but if we have one mask, then two is better. If two is good, then 17 is better. If, <laughs> 23 masks. And then the sort of more conservative people are like, but this is insanity. Like we already said, we're never gonna, you guys are creeping this mask thing. Now you really are creeping it. You want us to wear more and more and more. And then the left says, but the variants. And then everyone freaks out. I mean, what did you've written about this? Tell me. Yeah, uh, the double masking, it, it, it caught me off guard. <laughs> I didn't think that we'd be a year into the pandemic where the first time the CD says, oh, by the way, consider that double masking. Because if you're gonna say it, you gotta say it in the first month or two, right? What, what, what accounts for this 12 month delay if you were going to say it? Um, and you know, I looked into the evidence. The evidence is of course, they did one of their mask studies based on a mannequin. They got some mannequin, they had it wear a mask and they had its um, plastic mannequin mouth spray aerosols. And of course, there's gonna be some leakage. Then they tied a knot in the string on the, on, the, on the earlobe of the surgical mask, or you put a cloth mask over a surgical mask. That was a double masking. And both the knot at the ear, because it kind of tightens the fit a little ah. bit, or the, the cloth surgical mask on top reduced the spray from the mannequin's mouth. And I was like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this has absolutely, we have no idea if it has any real world value at That's all. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, like they say, like in research, like mice lie and chimps exaggerate. <laughs> Mannequins, where do you put a mannequin on that spectrum? Like it's not even an experimental animal. I did my own end of one study. At least it was a human. I wore a uh, double mask. Uh, for a couple uh, minutes, maybe about 30 minutes. And one was over my nose and the other was over my chin. So they kind of pushed each other. <laughs> it's true, they pushed each other apart. Uh, but you know, I don't mean that to offer that as evidence. That's, that's a silly anecdote. But the point is that this is not real evidence about how real people are gonna use it. Yeah. Moreover, we're a year into this pandemic where there have been major places um, that we, we could have put some efforts into, but we didn't. I'll give you one example. If you work as the cook um, in the kitchen of a restaurant, while all these people on Twitter are saying, um, you know, support local businesses, get takeout. In this country, and particularly in California, the data shows that one of the highest risk occupations for getting SARS-CoV-2. The line cook. The line cook. So if you work as a cook, one day you have a fever. Can you afford to call in sick? And the answer is, there is no national survey. There is no infrastructure to provide paid sick leave for people who are having fevers in the middle of a pandemic. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about resources to support these people. What do we talk about? We talk about double masking. We talk about the visible symbol. I almost just started swearing. Um, <laughs> you can. <laughs> I guess I-, I I'm swearing say, internally right now. It's a, it's, a, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the things that actually might help, providing resources to vulnerable people who may be more likely to spread or to have the virus. Um, instead of doing that, we focus on this visible symbol. We obsess about this visible symbol. How many twi Twitter- um, selfies have I seen of somebody running outside for many miles with no one around wearing a mask. Yeah. Many, many. 
because it's a visible symbol that tells you I'm a good person. But it's not actually what, it ne what we needed, not what we needed then, it's not what we need now. And double masking, I think it's a, it's a joke that they're even talking it's about. A it. distraction, it's a distraction, like you said, from the fact that they all know that the actual things that were gonna help people, which is helping the most vulnerable yeah. people, it doesn't happen. Like you said, the line <clears throat> cooks. Like it feels so good to be part of the zoomocracy and sitting here and going, I'm gonna order, you know, Chipotle. Support local support Chipotle. Support local Chipotle. So what do you do? You get an Instagram, or Instagram, an Instacart driver, to go put himself at risk in an unventilated restaurant where the line cook is already infected and has to come to work because he has no other option, is lying about the symptoms because his kid's livelihood is on the line. Yeah. And we no, we do nothing for that. We give PPP money to the big corporation, Chipotle, and then they maybe continue torturing that line cook. Another high-risk occupation has been construction workers. Why mm. is that such a high risk? Because many people are getting their house remodeled. Right. That's a great thing to do when you have a lot of money. I saw a Wall Street Journal article about how um, homeschooling isn't so bad, just remodel the kid's room for 70 grand. This is a real article. You know, people don't have 70 grand to remodel their kid's room to make it more friendly to, to Zoom school. Um, we have failed. We failed to provide resources to the most vulnerable communities that are hardest hit by SARS-CoV-2. And what do we do instead? One year into a pandemic, you have the audacity to provide some bullshit mannequin study telling me to double mask, putting more personal responsibility out there. I honestly think that to some degree, it's a political tactic. If you were failing as a politician, you're failing as a leader, how do you distract away from your failure? You put more responsibility on people. It's you who's failed. You didn't wear your fucking double mask. I was like, get the fuck out of here with this double mask bullshit. All, all it is is an aerosol study. It tells you nothing about real world usage, nothing about compliance. I find it disgraceful that they would have the audacity to even say that, have a press conference to talk about this when they have not invested in what they really needed to. And the worst part of it is the same social justice people who are very loud about saying that they care about <clears throat> poor people are the ones who obsess about the mass and shame other people. And this is their thing. It's their outward symbol of virtue signaling. Whereas what about that line cook? What about the kid who doesn't have the remodeled house, yeah. doesn't even have Wi-Fi, doesn't even have internet, but you have closed that kid's school because you don't feel safe and the teacher's union doesn't feel safe, even though children have like a negative, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get into and, that. And, and yet, and yet, and, and where's the anger for that? It, it's not manifest. I'm, you know, how many times I've been on the show to tell people, I am a progressive. I believe that society can be better if we invest in the most vulnerable people, the people at the bottom of the wealth distribution. Um, and it pains me to see my fellow progressives take their eye off that issue and be so distracted by a visible symbol, engaging in shaming personal responsibility. Now we see it again, pictures of Miami Beach. You know what? The worst thing you can do, shame these kids at Miami Beach for being outside doing what young people need to do. I mean, it's literally a crying human need. You're shaming them. What are you gonna do? Drive them into motel rooms. I mean, it's-, it's Oh, it's, it's the worst. It's the you know, worst. you Enough see it on Twitter immediately. Oh, Miami Beach on, you know, emergency, declare state <laughs> of emergency because kids show up to spend money in their community and be kids and their chances of actually dying of COVID are remote. And I mean, come on, dude. We've lost our minds. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, we've, it's like the, it's like I keep telling this story about the couple of 20 year olds I saw on the plane when I took a family vacation to Maui oh, proudly. Mm -hmm. We wore our masks on the plane. We got tested. I'm fully vaccinated. My wife is fully vaccinated. We went to Maui. It was joyous. We spent money there. I tipped 50% on every meal because I was filled with joy and wow. I felt like 
here's someone who's working yes. and is, you yes. know, and they would say, well, no, actually that's not okay. And, uh, you know, you can't do that. And also you're a bad parent for <clears throat> taking your unvaccinated children on a plane, which is obviously a festering cesspool of disease until you look at the data and realize it has better ventilation than the schools, <laughs> which, <laughs> well, which they themselves are probably pretty safe to open. Right, yeah. exactly right. Um, that's, that's a, and that's a perfect segue to Emily Austin. There we go. Um, because you, uh, I guess, had you written that in the Atlantic, you'd find yourself getting, uh, getting, uh, a mob, a mob reaction on Twitter. Yeah. Now this Twitter mob, uh, they are, uh, they've lost touch with what people are doing. My friend, I walk around <laughs> San Francisco. We had outdoor dining open the lines for outdoor dining. Like you've never around seen the block. Yeah. People are tired. They're exhausted. They want to get some sense of normalcy. Enter Emily Oster. She's an economist at Brown. Um, she's a thoughtful person. Um, she is somebody who's written, I think, two best-selling books about, um, I don't know, what to expect when you're expecting and uh, childcare. Full disclosure, I haven't read the books, but I have some sense of her arguments. I've seen them here or there. Um, she's an economist who looks at data and tries to give people evidence-based recommendations. Mm. Um, and what she did here was she wrote an article uh, that analyzed whether or not um, by this summer, it would be reasonable for somebody, if you two vaccinated adults and they're unvaccinated kids to go on vacation. Mm. And, and that was the theme of her article. And her thought was that by the summertime, any adult in this country who wants a vaccine um, will have gotten a vaccine. Mm -hmm. We have um, you know 30 million documented SARS-CoV-2 infections and at least two times, three times, four times as many undocumented infections, plus the 75 million people who are already vaccinated, that's just gonna go up. Mm -hmm. So we might be in a pretty good place by summer. Um, in terms of just the raw number of people who have some immunity against this virus. And in that situation, she acknowledges the fact that kids, if they get the virus, they have a very low risk of bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, something on the order of one, 10 to the power of six or seven, you know, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million kind of out bad outcomes from a number of studies. Um, and, and she says it's entirely reasonable to go on vacation. Um, and she used an analogy. That analogy got her into a lot of trouble, which was that your unvaccinated child is like your vaccinated grandparent. They are both at very low risk of death um, and you can think about them similarly. And like all uh, analogies, it's imperfect. Like all metaphors, it's not exactly right. Um, but you know, it's not exactly wrong either. And the biggest thing that people said in response to her where she, what they call her, you know, dangerous misinformation, you know, that's what people say when they mean to say, I disagree with this perspective. They say dangerous misinformation. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the part they said is that, you know, we don't know um, if an unvaccinated child might spread the virus more than a vaccinated adult. And the answer is, um, I guess no one knows for sure the different propensity to spread in these two groups. And it's also contingent, I think people on the internet may forget, it's contingent on the baseline rate of SARS-CoV-2 in the population. Mm. The baseline spread rate, um, the number of cases per 100,000 per day diagnosed, that's one of the factors, plus the probability the child will acquire the virus, the probability the child will spread the virus versus the probability a vaccinated person acquires the virus or uh, asymptomatic PCR carriage and the probability they spread. And the answer is, you know, nobody knows these numbers exactly with, uh, with precision. Um, I've done a lot of work, try to estimate these, you know, to the closest 10 to the power of. Um, First, some of these articles I've been writing. So I think she, no one can say she's wrong. At the same time, you know, you can't say for sure she's right. Um, but I think it's a reasonable perspective to have. It's a reasonable metaphor to argue. Um, but, you know, she was destroyed on online. So it's what David Katz would call the marriage of science and sense. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a yeah. It, it. You know, she's done some numbers. Okay, maybe they're not perfect. And then she says, well, here's the sense of it. These kids are generally low <laughs> risk. 
by the summer, all this other stuff will have happened. And you know, I remember I've already done this. So I've done the calculation (laughs) for the most important people in the universe to me, my family. family. Right. And I would die for my family. So I don't care about me. I'm thinking, okay, what about wife? What about kids? How's it gonna be? I did the math, did the did the sense, said no. This is the thing. And what happened? We had this tremendous bonding experience that had been pent up for well over a year. We got to give economic support to an island that has been suffering. I mean, the place was pretty deserted, Mm. but starting to open up. And uh, we got vitamin D, which probably protected us more (laughs) from COVID than hiding in our house like, you know, fearful mice that have been poisoned by the social contagion of the media. Yeah, and- um, Now I sound like one of these alt-right lunatics, but uh, you know what? I think- Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder. I mean, I think that Twitter is a, um, a a place of lunacy. I mean, it's a place of a certain point of view, a very exaggerated point of view that prioritizes some fears and not other fears. Um, and those fears they prioritize are the fears of theoretical SARS-CoV-2 spread. The fears they don't prioritize, prioritize are people's mental health, mental well-being, physical well-being, schools, all these other sort of important mm. needs they simply just have a blind spot to. Um, in the case of Emily Oster, let me tell you, tell you what happened. Um, she She tweeted this. The headline said something like, your unvaccinated child is like a vaccinated grandma. And for the reasons I mentioned, people leapt on that saying, we don't know that for sure. They actually went further. They said it was false. I I would argue that they don't know that it's false for sure. It's actually Mm -hmm. contingent on baseline rates. So under some circumstances, it might be quite accurate. Um, Anyway, uh, it's all beside the point. Uh, They they piled on her. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of nasty, and most of it is nameless, faceless, you know, what you call, yes. Um, But a few were real professors. Um, saying, uh, I would say, um, inappropriate things. And a huge theme of it was, who the fuck is Emily Oster, a economist, to tell us about trade-offs? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, here's a little secret. Economists, they happen to know something about, about trade-offs. trade-offs. Yeah, In fact, do. that's what they do. <laughs> that's what they do. You know, I'm gonna make an interesting, <laughs> the, God, yeah. I'll make an interesting happen parallel here. So there's this guy, Gert van den Bosch, uh, who's a Dutch guy, I think, who ha, ha, he's a vaccine scientist by self-description, <laughs> uh, trained in veterinary medicine, but then got a PhD in virology, something along those lines. And he came out on video saying, we need to halt our mass vaccination campaigns because we shouldn't be giving prophylactic preventative vaccines during a raging pandemic because all we're gonna do is basically select for vaccine escape variants by putting selective pressure. And he went into the weeds on this, like talking about, well, but there's these natural killer cell responses that we ought to be focusing on. We don't, he doesn't say how, and of course he's developing a natural killer cell vaccine. So there's a little conflict there. But so here's an interesting case where Okay, well, you can brand that as dangerous misinformation. You can come out, like I could come out and do a video and say, this guy's dangerous, he's gonna kill people. That's not what I did. I said, so here's this guy and that's what he's saying. Let's look at his arguments. Right, right, you took him to task. Here's what's going on, this is what I think, this is based on the science that I understand, these are things he's missing. Uh, By the way, here are his credentials. So I didn't say it was bad that he's a veterinarian (laughs) by training. In fact, veterinarians have know a little something about vaccines too. Sure. you don't like sit there and, and, and harsh on his credentials. I made a joke about his accent. I'm like, well, the German accent, everyone wants to believe it. And people, <laughs> people convinced me that it was in fact a Dutch accent. And oh, I was I like, okay. now you're the bad guy, aren't you? Because <laughs> you're, you're noticing those differences, aren't you? But it's, the point being, 
the way you deal with that is you then come out and say, oh, I disagree scientifically, here's the reasons, and this, this is why I think he's totally wrong and his arguments are not sane yeah. in this way. But what they did to Emily is they said, she lacks the credential to make the argument. She can't make the argument. She can't make the argument. Forget about the argument. They she don't, they don't lacks the She lacks the credential to make to the argument. Yeah, that's what they said. Right. And despite the fact that, uh, I don't know if they're aware of the fact, um, she's written two best-selling books uh, at the intersection of healthcare decisions and risk. That's literally what, <laughs> what she's she done. Does. She's the expert on that space, in that space. The second thing I would say is I think there is, uh, you know, we have to be honest, and maybe I've been guilty of this in the past, there's a little bit of a bias against economists. It's oh, a sure. dismal science. Those the, the, the bean counters, they don't care about human emotions and, and human needs and desires. I think that's how some of us perceive uh, economics to be. Um, I have since cured myself of that delusion by learning more about what they do and realizing that it is important. Um, yeah. Like all these things are important. Epidemiology is important. Psychology is important. History is important. Economics is important. Um, I would never say she ought not comment on this space um, because she is not an epidemiologist. She has every right to comment. And if you disagree with what she says, you you ought to, you can rebut her freely. Right. Um, but I, I, I object to the credentialism. The reverse credentialism is, where somebody says, yeah. which is what you're avoiding, what you're talking about is that somebody says, he he is an immunologist, ergo he's right. Yes. So that's not true either. Yes. You can have all the credentials in the world, but you also could be wrong. Yes. And you may have a different credential and you might be right. We have to debate the arguments on the face of the argument. That, that's right. And it's actually interesting because they were pulling the credentialism on me. So whenever I do a video about something like the Gert Vandenbush thing where yeah. a large segment of the population wants to believe this guy is right <clears throat> because they're tired of the pandemic, they're afraid of vaccines, they don't trust the government, they don't trust big pharma. Look, I don't trust the government or big pharma either, but I also have to science the crap out of stuff and go, well, no, but this is actually a time when you do because it all kind of came together. Yeah, I, can, right? I, I, all I've done is uh, I, it, when in the cancer drug space, I've been relentlessly critical against the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. I read the data from Pfizer Moderna. Like, hmm. I was sold. They nailed it. They nailed it. Now, yeah. what AstraZeneca is another subject, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, like, yeah I haven't dug into that, that data, but man, dug they, they're like Jeez. the bastard stepchild. Of all. <laughs> it's you know, I, I, it's like poor AstraZeneca. It's like everybody else's trials are pretty well done, and it's not very hard to pick them apart. <laughs> then you look at AstraZeneca. It's like, wait, you have the dose in the second part, and then wait, what's going on now? Where they're saying we're not really thinking you have updated information. What does that even mean? <laughs> like when, when, when an FDA, yeah. when, a, when an independent review board says something like that, that's unprecedented uh, publicly. So something's happening that needs to be dug into, but yes. it doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work. It means that we better get the data understood right. But so these guys, so on, on YouTube, the thing gets a ton of views. 70% of the thumbs are down for you, for me. And mm. all the comments are like, mm. why would I listen to a bald clown about vaccines? <laughs> or the best, the best is I Googled ZDog MD. What kind uh -huh. of name is that? Uh -huh. And this is what it says. And so I hadn't Googled myself in like three years. Yeah. So I Googled myself yeah. and it, lo and behold, it pops up a picture of me pulled from Wikipedia, okay. which I didn't realize it's full of errors. It says American comedian. <laughs> You finally made I it. I finally you made, made it. it. You That's made it. I felt flushed with dopamine. Yeah. I was like, I my did dream it. was my to be that. My dream was to be a comedian. Yeah. But yeah, so they're so like, why would I listen to UCSF a comedian? UCSF trained physician, Stanford residency. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. So the credentialism cuts all the different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so funny. I, I made a joke about it, and I know some people were like all like all good jokes. It uh, somebody somebody didn't find it funny. Uh, they're all lemon faced about on. Oh, I don't like that joke. Um, uh, the, the, <laughs> there's always oh, I don't, I don't care. For, oh, I don't care for that joke. Uh, yeah, it's always somebody. That's what their uh, voice sounds like in my head. I think that's what I when hear. I read their tweets yeah. and stuff. Well, it appears you are a little tone deaf there, Z Dog. 
<laughs> what was the joke? The joke was something like, um, the same person who's going to fault Emily Oster and say, um, you know, an economist shouldn't, who is she to be commenting about what we ought to do, uh, you know, after vaccination? Um, they're really happy to tweet like some random tech worker who writes a medium post. About <laughs> confirmation about, bias yeah about yeah. how we can get to covid zero in the next yeah, four yeah, weeks yeah. i'm like you're tweeting just bullshit just, just bullshit by somebody with no credentials and not only the argument is lacking the credentials are lacking you're happy to retweet that and amplify that but emily oster professor at brown she doesn't have what you need no, okay fine sure yeah. it's total hypocrisy no. they literally are saying if you agree with me you can be anybody on the street yeah but if you disagree with me you have to be a phd yeah. md double boarded in wokeness yeah yeah, it's oh, absolutely true. They, it's it's ridiculous, and I don't know how they don't, people don't see this that they're they're complicit in this. But anyway, well, you know, and speaking of colorless, off color jokes, I have one for you. Do you understand why um, we know the pandemic is ending? No, because the mass shootings have started. Again, oh, you know, it's <laughs> oh, like boy. you know we're opening up. You know the crazy is back when the mass shootings start, and they've started. Yeah, this and is that is the yeah. the truth is they they went away for a good bit of the pandemic. That's one of the silver linings of this. Makes you wonder, you could probably get to the bottom of mass shootings apart from the fact that it's usually crazy individuals who've been influenced by God knows what, by understanding what the pandemic did that sucked it away. But that's another discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, yeah, this, it, an, another tragedy the other day. And uh, I think many of us have been, you know, weary from these mass shootings. We're yeah. just, it's tough to hear. Um, and one wonders what it will take for this country to actually uh, do something about it. Uh, I, there's that Onion article a few years ago. It says, um, uh, th uh, there, there's nothing we can do about this, says only country on earth where this keeps happening. You know? <laughs> well, it's kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like uh, healthcare too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all going bankrupt from healthcare. It says only country, and we don't know what to do about it. Yeah, yeah it's only country where there's 20% of GDP on healthcare. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, you know, we we're exceptional. Yeah. Benai, we're, we're, we're America. So that brings me, speaking of uh, cancellations. Okay, and, that's, uh, uh, that's a good segue. When you disagree Marty, with someone, Marty, Marty McCary, yeah. good friend, friend of the show, been on the show. Uh, you mean misinformation spreading Marty, spreading Marty Just McCary. by saying that, yeah. I am, this video is now demonetized. <laughs> is it? Probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. And uh, yeah, so he wrote a piece that he actually talked about on my show in the Wall Street fucking journal. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, that's a minor journal. Nobody really has heard of it. It's not mainstream media at all. <laughs> And he says something to the effect of he anticipates that we will have some yeah. vestige of herd immunity in the US by the end of April. And the reason being the combination of vaccines, the underestimates of how many yeah. people have actually been exposed yeah. to real wild type uh, coronavirus. Yes. And so generating a kind of immunity that will uh, allow us to open up. And yeah. he was making other arguments too, but yeah. By April 30th, we will have herd immunity. That's mm -hmm. Marty Macri's um, position. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we can relax restrictions. Right. And I guess I would say that, um, you know, it, it immediately got pushback. There are a lot of people who feel like that that claim is either not fully supported or might not materialize. Uh, you know, we don't know. We'll see. April 30th is coming. We will find out the answer. We're going to know the answer. We're going to know the answer. Um, but, but I think he, he, it was a reasonable way to argue. And actually, he drew upon... Uh, you know, a CDC estimate in calculating his estimate. Now that estimate has been criticized, sure, yeah. but it is a CDC estimate, we have to point out. So there are some people who, who favor that estimate, or at least at one point in time, they favor the estimate. So what happened to Marty? Um, 
my understanding is that if you tried to share that article, Wall Street Journal opinion article mm. by Marty, professor, Johns Hopkins University. It's an op-ed. It's an and, op-ed. And he's op-ed. got the credentials. He's got the credentials. Um, and he is a professor of policy. That's the other thing I want to point out. You right. know, if somebody says he's a surgeon, he's a surgical oncologist, this is just an ad hominem attack. Right. Uh, right. You, you, you know, Marty is somebody who has spent, he's written a book about healthcare. Uh, yeah. A couple. A couple books. And, and, and by the way, um, <clears throat> he's not an American comedian. Yeah, no. So there's something I have that, <laughs> that Marty, Marty doesn't, doesn't have. have. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. So he's the, so they're, they're attacking his credentials yeah. for not, they're forgetting that he's a policy professor. Health he's a po- policy. Yeah, which doesn't make, that doesn't make him right or wrong. Correct. It just means that he, I don't know what it means. It, it means that if he's writing an op-ed, you would go, well, here's an educated guy who yes, studies the stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and, but if you, but it was, uh, this is what I got, thought it was very interesting. If you post it on Facebook, it would actually say that uh, independent fact checkers have found this to be misleading. Something to that effect. Independent fact checkers have found right. Marty to be misleading. Not only that, Facebook de-throttles those uh, posts. Yeah. They're less likely to be seen by other people. Yep. They're literally um, using their algorithms to, to drive Marty's view into the dirt. Yes. Okay, so they are in fact engaged in what I would say is censoring. Censorship. Now there's some people on Twitter, there's some people who say, well, it's not censoring, you can still read it. I'm sorry, if you use the brute force power of the platform to extinguish or diminute the view beyond the actions of the participants on the platform, you are putting your hand on the scale. You're engaged in some act of censorship. That's what it is. It's what they call on YouTube a shadow ban. By demonetizing a video, and I talked with Dave Rubin about this on his show and Dr. Drew who got demonetized and all that and, and, and so on. By demonetizing a video, the algorithm says, I'm not serving this video anymore. Yeah. By banning it, by, by tagging it with a misinformation label and oh, click here to find the truth. Yeah. Uh, you are effectively banning that from people seeing it. So you are censoring that video, period, yeah. end of story. It's like saying that in, uh, in, in, in some totalitarian regime, uh, where the books are being burned in a pile. It's not censoring because there's still a couple copies out there. You there's know still what? a couple copies out there. You can still there. get <laughs> you a Gutenberg still, press. Yeah, you can still print it yourself. And print yeah. it yourself from and, first principles. And read in your basement with the light and hey. not let anyone see it. Bro, yeah. have you heard of oral tradition? <laughs> <laughs> it's not censored yet, is it's it? Not it's censored. not censored. It's not I, mean, censored. I can't rip tradition. your voice cords out. If I could, I would do it. Yes. Uh, no, no, it's really true. Yeah. So then you dug into this. Okay, I dug into it. Oh, so, man. So I dug into it. I'm like- This I, blew my mind, by the way, when I read your piece. So first of all, I, I complained that they're censoring it. This is not the first time. It's been multiple instances. So Carl Hennigan's article got dinged. Uh, John Yonides had a YouTube video in the early pandemic. It right. got you ripped off ripped YouTube. Ripped off, yeah. I'm like, what is the- So then uh, I, I complained that they ought not do this to professors. That if you're a professor and you're arguing in, in, a, in a national forum, like a Wall Street Journal, they have their own fact-checking, their own processes. Um, that argument has to be allowed to play itself out. Right. Let the public decide, let people decide. If Marty wins the, 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 the battle of ideas, let him win, but he might lose as well, right. sure. Um, so I complained about that. And then some people said, well, that I was wrong. I said, you know what, I, I was the fact checker, said one person, I was the fact checker. And there are problems with this article, it's not meritorious. And then I said, wait, you're the fact checker for Facebook. You're the, you're the fact checker. I was like, have you been to Facebook? Because it's a sea of bullshit. <laughs> you're not doing your job. If you're, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Facebook is an ocean. It's a cesspool of filth. Cesspool of, of nonsense. Garbage. And in the cesspool of nonsense, they found Marty's article. Boom, you're done, Marty. <laughs> I was you know, like, what you, is this? You know why? Because he's Egyptian. Oh, yeah, see, if I were Marty, I would have played the race card. He, he could have played it. Yeah. And and then Facebook would have had to back down because all their woke employees would be like, but 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 wait, we did, wait, he was what? Egyptian? No, we can't do that. It, I, I'm telling you, dude. 
all this anti-vax garbage on there, all this other swill, there's all so much supplements and bullshit. Their business model is lies. It's I mean, that's predicated the on that's spreading so misinformation. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just like what you know. It's just a sea. Of, we uh, we could belabor this to death, but the point is, Facebook full of nonsense for many many years. Of all the things on Facebook, there are only a few things that have been labeled misinformation. Right. One is Marty's. Marty's professor. It's really interesting. Is Marty the most egregious thing said on Facebook? I would argue no. <laughs> I would argue no. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was interested. So this person said, I'm the fact checker for Facebook. I was like, oh, okay. How'd you who get are you? Yeah. yeah. Who are you? Okay. So um, it turns out Facebook has contracted an independent site and, I, and I'm blanking on the website name right now, but it's something like health reviews, feedback, something, something, something. Mm. Um, and that independent site, they choose stories that they say are gaining a lot of traction or they're kind of vague about how they're picking. Mm. Because the first thing about fact checking is like, which articles do you fact check? That's a potential source of bias. If you just fact check things that you don't like, you know, I can fact check other views. I can extinguish views I don't like because I'm selectively fact checking. So they don't talk about how they pick the articles. Once they pick the articles, they don't talk about how they solicit the reviewers, but they solicit between two and four reviewers per article. Um, and those reviewers are often, you know, people who are in the field. I, I don't dispute that. Um, they're fine. Um, I started digging a little bit more and I noticed that this website has been, faced, uh, has been fact checking pre-COVID and post-COVID. Pre-COVID, when they fact check, they're picking people who, I believe off the top of my head, like 50% of them had a Twitter account. They averaged about 1,000 followers or something like that, or a few thousand followers. In other words, sort of modest Twitter presence. Um, Post-COVID, the fact checkers are 80% on Twitter, and they're averaging like 42,000 followers, median 10,000 followers. It's like it's like a lot of, it's unusual that so many experts in epidemiology are Twitter celebrities. Are Twitter celebrities. And, and then I picked random faculty members at Hopkins epidemiology department. Yeah. And I said, how many are on Twitter? And of course it's like, I don't know, I forget 30%, 40% and, and, and they have very little followers. And then I started looking at it more. And in, as you read these fact checkers, they're like, oh, Marty's article was immediately detected by somebody on Twitter who said, this is a shitty article. And somebody else says a shitty article. And then in one case on fact checking, the fact checker had already written a thread about why the article is problematic. Oh, wow. So, I mean, let me try to articulate why this is really problematic. Um, whatever view you want, Z-Dog, if you want the view that we're gonna be herd immunity by April 30th yeah. and we should relax restrictions now, or the opposite, that we may not have herd immunity until, I don't know, 2022, and we should ramp up restrictions, I can look on Twitter and I can find you three people with domain expertise who hold that view. Somewhere in this world, I can find you three people. Absolutely. So if I read the article with my own biases right. and I either like restrict, um, removing restrictions or I don't like it, I can give you three people that will censor it either direction. Um, this is easily, my, easily, easily, easily. Easy. Confirmation, cherry picking, easy to do. And and so what Facebook is, has sanctioned is a kangaroo court, I call it, mm. because they can extinguish any viewpoint that you don't like. Let's just take an example totally separate from COVID, mammography. Um, you know, there are at least a hundred scientists who think women between the ages of 40 and 50, um, it is not very sensible to recommend mammography, that the, the net balance is detrimental. There's a thousand scientists who think that you ought to do it and maybe do it yearly. Right. And the USPSTF comes out in the middle, somewhere in between. Right. Um, Imagine if we were not allowed to have discourse about this. Like, I want to fight this war of ideas, have a dialogue. But imagine if we allowed Facebook to, um, you know, censor the mammography views they don't like. They can easily find and somebody who works at this website can pick three people um, who feel one way or the other, and they can extinguish the other view. And so, I guess I would say that I think 
this is a huge- That's terrifying. Yeah. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's not how science is done. And, and the thing is, look, look, like, I, 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 so there's a, there, there's a thing called false equivalence, right? Where two views suddenly are given equal yes. status because they're, the one guy's loud. So like, again, we'll go back to this Von and Bush guy who's saying, don't vaccinate, stop the campaigns now. This is gonna kill humanity. That's what he says. Basically what he's saying. Yes. And I hadn't even heard of him. Before. Oh, yeah, yeah nobody yeah. had. Nobody okay. had, probably until I started talking, that's not true. No. I would get a million emails yeah, from people yeah. saying, people can you debunk this guy? Because gotcha. my grandma believes him. Okay. And I said, okay, well, so let's hear his arguments. And I was like, oh, they're cogently put. They're, I think they're incorrect. Let me mm -hmm. debunk it. Now, he now has a platform through video and he got an interview with some guy who, and he can reach as many people as a world-class <clears throat> vaccine scientist can. And the public then is gonna cherry pick the opinion that feels the most sure, correct to them sure. and now put scientific weight behind it. So how do you counter that? Facebook says, well, okay, well now what we're gonna do is we're gonna put ZDog's video as the misinformation counter okay. to that video. And I'm deeply uncomfortable with I that. I see. Because what it, again, it gets down this rabbit hole is well, well, based on what? You're gonna get more thumbs down if they keep adding those. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're dragging his followers. To your that's point. why. No, that's why no, 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 but no, you know but what? Your point. But, yeah. but you know what? You're right. Yeah, you will. It didn't even occur to me no, because what, every comment on my videos on on how Facebook are they is your video filthy, video. like yeah. rubbish of like this guy's a evil bald Doctor Evil, and I'm like, <laughs> when did my fans get so mad at me? And then I realized they're not my fans because you look at who they are. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Joe Blow from Duluth who has no medical background, and and so that's where they're coming in. But you know, I, I think, I mean, you're raising a, a broad issue, which is, and we saw this with um, Pizzagate and the Capitol riots, which is that mm -hmm. there is the possibility that there is information disseminating on these platforms that truly puts, I don't know, real people in the real world at, at risk. risk yeah. um, so I don't wanna say that's not true. And I, I have some ideas on how you can kind of tackle that. Um, there's a separate issue, which is that there's also the truth that everything in medicine is a matter of life or death, right. by definition. Right. And there's also the truth in medicine that there's a lot of stuff that are is genuinely live debates. Yeah. And so I, I don't I, I, I'm not ready to argue for the proposition that any idea on Facebook should be uh, untouched. Because I don't know if I you know, we can debate that's a that's a, right. that's a broader sure. conversation. What I am willing to say is that when a national media outlet like the Wall Street Journal uh -huh. publishes a Johns Hopkins professor's view, um, you you need a process that is transparent, impartial, has an appeal process, is fair. We have an article we've submitted to some journals to try to sort of craft how, what would this process might look like. I mean, even if you believe that there should be censoring here, which I'm not sure I believe in, right. um, there needs to be some process where Marty can have an appeal. Right. Marty, Marty has no appeal. Right. Um, there needs to be some process where the reviewers are not just people on Twitter who have already said, I don't want restrictions to go away. Right. I don't want restrictions to go away. Oh, you're the perfect person to review Marty. Absolutely. Get out of here, come Absolutely. on. Absolutely. They are picking you because they know you're not gonna like Marty's view. It, it, it's, it's, it's like if I did a video saying, hey, with, with Monica Gandhi, and, and she says variants, shimmerians. Yes. Like the variants are not the reason to stop this vaccination process and opening up because of the X, Y, and Z. And then they go, well, we need, okay, people are tagging this as misinformation yes, on who possibly. disagree. Yes. Let's go to Twitter, let's find somebody. Angela Rasmussen, Eric Ding. They're gonna disagree of course, strongly. They, they, they know that in advance. They know it in advance yeah. because they've already tweeted that they hate this idea and that they think it's evil. They've, you know, Angela Rasmussen has directly personally attacked Monica Gandhi yeah, on Twitter. Something a little she, little harsh about a character, how she takes care a of. Character, a character. And we'll leave it at that. And um, yeah, so, so now, like in, and I will make this analogy because I want to, 
like in the Salem witch trials. You have a power structure, you have the authorities in the power structure who mm. are the popular yeah. people in the power structure in the tribe, whatever, are now saying, well, we deem you a heretic. And they can say, okay, this is now heretical, non-correct. The, the term for heresy now is misinformation, mm -hmm. right? So, okay, this is misinformation. Well, okay, I can't appeal except yeah. to the court of public opinion because I have a platform. But if I didn't have the platform, I have no appeal process at all. I mean, you, like you, you said, you make the Salem uh, witch trials uh, analogy. I think that the analogy is interesting in a couple ways. One, um, sometimes what happens here is that there is a pre-existing pre grudge. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. there's a pre-existing grudge. They didn't like that, you know, they didn't like how Monica spoke to them five years ago. Mm -hmm. They didn't like that Marty didn't uh, publish their paper in some journal five years ago. We don't know that. I mean, I don't know what backstory there may be. Right. And then suddenly they're in a position of power. They control if Marty, is Marty the evildoer Marty? Or is he, uh, you know, a potential visionary? And and and, and that temptation to, uh, you know, air your old grievance. Um, you know, I experience it too, because um, it's funny sometimes, like I have a post about one issue and there's always like one perseverating person in the comments who's like five years ago v five years ago <laughs> yeah. vp said he's against whole genome sequencing i'm too. like what are you I i'm like that's too. not the topic and i was like and oh, by the way i was right then i'm right now yeah, yeah exactly yeah, like, two different do issues. you remember that time you talked about abortion oh, i'm like they, that's one what, thing for you we're talking about masks <laughs> they always bring it up and um yeah I don't know. I, sometimes I forget about these things, but uh, the, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I, I got to say this. Yeah, I can't imagine like caring about. No offense. I like you. We're friends. Yeah. But I can't imagine caring about you so much that I remember. Like I dislike you. Right. So that's one thing. I yeah. dislike you. Yeah. And I'm keeping track of what you said five years ago on yeah. unrelated issues. Yeah. And then I'm going to bring that back in the future and talk yeah. to you about it. I have a life. I got shit to do, dude. I don't got time to keep track of you. <laughs> it, like, it, you it, it tells you more about that person it than really it does, does about the target of the it hate. Really does. It really like how, does. I can't imagine, like, is there anyone you keep track of in your life that you're like, no. No, I'm like, I can't, I, don't, like, I can't nobody. keep track of my own shit. I know. Yeah. And I've been, you know, I, I believe me, I know when I've been, I feel like I've been wrong. Yeah. So it's like, I, I have plenty of people that I'm like, man, this yeah, guy was a dick. Of course. But it's not like, you know, if, if, if next month, we suddenly have an interaction on Twitter that's positive. I don't go, I'm not gonna continue this because you were a dick. In the past. In the past. You might give him a, uh, you might change how you think about him. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's happened to me so many times. Uh, because- can I, can I just say, this is, yeah. a, this is a psychological trait actually, mm. which I think is important. And I don't know, um, uh, I don't know if you were brought up this way, but like the trait is that like, you can't take um, disagreements so much to heart. Yeah. You really can't. Yeah. It's it's gonna poison your ability to have relationships with totally. people. And it, and if if you're the kind of person who they look at some Z Dog video from four years ago where you talked about your um your personal experience with how you felt during right. 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 And they're bringing that up like to say that you're not a credible source. That's that's a pathology in yeah. that person. Like yeah. and it's not a good way to be in the world. It's gonna hurt them in their own pursuits. I think they really it's maladaptive. It, it's suffering for them yeah. and it's suffering for those around them. It's, you know, that's why, you know, all the ancient religions teach forgiveness, right? There's <laughs> well, a we reason. don't have that anymore. I no. mean, apparently if you tweeted something 10 years ago when you were an adolescent, oh, right. your job can be taken away from you. Dude. I mean, we have to have some, There, there's a statute of limitations in criminal law. There yeah. has to yeah, be some statute, statute of limitations, limitations in what teenagers, <laughs> teenagers, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, no, I, no, no, you're with it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I dude, it's, it's really bad. I will say right now, I will say right now publicly, the shit I did 
and videotaped and uh, talked like and shit to just get a rise out of people in college when I was at Berkeley is abominable. I mean, it, it was a childish person whose frontal lobe isn't developed, who's yeah. trying to get a rise by provoking people. I mean, I would walk around with my pants down with my underwear, just like walk around campus like that, just to get a rise out of people. By that, now, you, mean, you mean entertain them and let them have a little laugh. A, a little bit of that, but then also just trying to provoke people. That was part of my oppositional defiant disorder. I see. And now that would be considered basically rape. Like, I mean, that's how it's progressed. It, it's violence. And the thing is, if you took that me and put me now, first of all, it would be inexcusable because I'm an adult who knows better. Yes. But to judge the adult by the child is, it's almost like retroactively abusing the child. Yes. <laughs> like you're yes. saying you can't be you, you can't be growing, you can't be part of a growth hierarchy where yes. you're gonna be better than you were. Yes, and it also ignores the fact that um, on some of these live cultural issues, I think people forget how quickly the culture has shifted. Yeah. And 10 years ago, a joke that would be on oh, the yeah. nightly on the on, on tonight show right. in a primetime audience and not a single person would think twice about is a joke that it that is so offensive and that that's a that's not always a, that's that's a good thing that our culture has evolved yeah but it's also a recognition that everyone in the past is like this is, we're going to have to talk about Dr. Seuss because this is another story oh, yeah, right? yeah. um the thing you cannot judge the past uh by current morality similarly if you want to do that i promise you right now the future, a thousand years from now, they will look at us all as horrible people. I'll give you one oh, example. Oh yeah. Um, right now, there is, today, there is some child who's going hungry in this world. You are not doing everything within your power to help that child have food. In a future morality, that may be viewed as an unconscionable act. Slavery. It may be viewed yeah. as the worst thing imaginable. Why did Z-Dog, but, but, it's, but it's the way we are right now. Yeah. There are other things, I can't even imagine where morality will evolve to. That's good that morality will evolve in ways I can't imagine. Right. Um, but it's also a recognition that you cannot j blame, you cannot hold future morality standards to people in the past. Now let me talk about um, Seuss. Absolutely, and before you get to Seuss, I'll say this, in that reference frame, <clears throat> yeah. the last movie of the old era that we could never be made today uh, that has that kind of joke morality is Tropic Thunder. I, you know, it's been a long time since I talked about it, but, but he did um, blackface. He did blackface. Yeah. He, they used the word retard, like mm -hmm. never go full retard. Even just saying that word now will get me canceled. But that was part of the movie. It was baked into the movie. And what year was that? that was like this was like 2004 or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay. I mean, it was in the, in the aughts somewhere. In the aughts, right. Yeah. And it was a hilarious movie. And, and now you can watch it with a little bit of discomfort, but you still laugh really hard. But the thing is you couldn't make a movie like that anymore. And like you said, some of that is the positive progression of society yeah. to go, you know what? That word, which by the way, I, I, I interviewed a, um, a PhD, a medical ethicist at Stanford whose son has autism. And she taught me why that word is so hurtful mm -hmm. to people with kids with de developmental sure. disabilities. And so we can wake up and go, oh yeah, you know what? I don't need to use that word to be funny. But, but to judge like Ben Stiller or you know Michael, what was it? It was Robert uh, Downey Jr. Right. For that movie would be insanity because in its time it was that was that was again the morality of the time. I mean, I guess all those things can be true. Like that word um, has been hurtful to people. And we shouldn't use it. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. should be allowed to continue to have gainful employment. Yeah, right. Like exactly. That's really what talking, right. Like you don't cancel him like John Wayne, right? Posthumously, like, right? Like he should be allowed to earn a living. 
Exactly. Now, speaking of uh, posthumous cancellations. Okay, let's talk about Dr. Seuss. Theodore Geisel. Yeah. Um, PhD. So, I guess, uh, I don't know, six books are no longer being printed. And my understanding is that eBay has suspended sales. Like you can't even sell it on the secondhand market in, in eBay. And um, Is that really true? That's what I was reading wow. now. Um, I have not that I've tried to acquire. You and, might as well just pile a bunch of books and burn them and wear a swastika. As, by the way, the minute you start making Nazi analogies, you've already lost the argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I haven't read all of the six, um, but two, when I was a kid, um, people read to me and then I had read. Um, and um, and maybe I, I'll talk for a minute about what those books are about. Um, uh, uh, one was Mulberry Street mm -hmm. and then the next is McElligott's Pool. And Mulberry Street's written in 1937. And it tells the story of this kid named Marco. And Marco says, um, you know, I, it, it, it opens with Marco speaking to his father. And his father was like a stern man. He's a man of like how parents were in 1937, mm. you know, that kind of generation. And he says, Marco, you know, go out there, see what you see, tell me what you see, keep your eyelids open when you go out there on this, you know, today. Um, but don't, he, there's some line in there that says like, don't turn minnows into whales. Don't exaggerate. Just tell me what you see. And keep your eye out, uh, but don't don't confabulate, don't embellish. Yeah. Marco goes out and he says, you know, he sees a horse and a wagon on Mulberry Street. And he says, wait a second, horse and a wagon on Mulberry Street, that's so ordinary. Anyone can tell that tale. Any Tom or Jill or Jack or Jane can tell the tale of a horse and a wagon on Mulberry Street. And he's like, it's gotta be more sexy, exciting. He's like, instead of a horse, let's say it's a zebra. Zebra and a wagon on Mulberry Street. He's like, yeah. And you can already see, this is how children are in the world. Their minds are, you know, creative in a way that we can't really capture as adults, where our minds, you know, uh, we we come closed um, in in so many ways. Um, so then he starts thinking zebra, and he's like, no, zebra's not good enough. It should be a reindeer, but a reindeer is so big, pulling a little wagon. No, it should be a reindeer and a and a and a chariot, and, and instead of a chariot, it should be a sleigh. That's more fitting. And then it should be instead of a reindeer, it should be an elephant. And on top of the elephant is a raja from India. Mm. Okay, and the elephant is blue. And then, and then it should be um, like an like a entire band being pulled by it. So there's like music on Mulberry Street and then there's a mayor and then there's this and then there's like two giraffes and there's like, you know, it's like this fantastical tale. And he thinks about all these things he could be seeing on Mulberry Street. Um, and then it gets to the end and he's, he's like skipping up the stairs to see his father. And his father says, well, what did you see? What did you see on Mulberry Street? Did you see anything exciting, anything to make your heart beat? And he says, um, you know, uh, uh, and then he, Marco's like stammering. He doesn't know what to say. And then he suddenly turns red as a beat. And he says, I just saw a horse and a wagon on Mulberry Street. And so <laughs> like, it's just this story so about like- So beautiful, yeah. Like he, he, he was, the temptation to confabulate was there, but he looks his father in the eye and he didn't do it. Yeah. And, and his father was teaching him something. So like a certain thing about values and certain thing about truth and fiction and also imagination. Yeah. Uh, so those are the themes of the book. Fast forward, 47. 47 is McElligott's pool, another the book that got pulled. Um, it's the same character, Marco, and he's fishing in a pond. And it, it, this is a pond that's like a neighborhood uh, a pond. And people throw their boots and, I don't know, batteries and garbage in this pond. And it's been a while since I've looked at these books, but this is my recollection of what it is. And some guy comes to him and says, you know, little kid, you're such a fool. You never catch anything in McElligott's pool. And he says, oh, what do you mean? And he's like, that's the place where people throw all their shit in. Nobody's going to put anything good. You know, there's no fish in that pond. And he says, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe I'll sit here for a long time. I won't catch a thing. He says, but then again, maybe, maybe you're wrong. And he says, what if this pool is connected to an underground brook? And that underground brook goes under the ocean, connects to this, and I could catch this fish and that fish and this fish and that whale and this. And it just goes for 20 pages, lyrical, color drawings, all the things he thinks he might catch in McElligott's pool. And then he gets to the end and he says, so that's why when I sit here and fish in this pool, I think I'm not such a fool. You know, who knows what I'll catch in McElligott's pool, something like that. And, um, um, 
And it, it's the same guy. And, and to me, what I think it, it shows in, in Geisel's work is that um, the same child, the childhood capacity to imagine uh, is not dead in this kid yet. You know, he still has that, that creativity, that insight. He still sees things, the potential, the wonder in the world. If we, if we go into the world the way Marco does, that life is full of possibilities, it's much more enriching to us. He still has that. But at the end, he also acknowledges that maybe, maybe that won't happen. He doesn't tell the guy a lie. He doesn't confabulate. He acknowledges that maybe that's also not true. So he has, to some degree, learned his father's lesson. He's growing, I think, is what the books show. So, so when I read these books, or when I read the books as you know, a kid, I don't think they're ordinary books. These are not ordinary, random books. Um, these are works of art by somebody who is one of the greatest 20th century um, lyricists. I mean, this guy is a poet. He's, he's one of the most prodigious writers. He's written so many books. They've sold. I mean, he's crushed it. There's nobody bigger than this guy, Dr. Seuss. And he's not just some kid's author. He's somebody who's trying to show you. He didn't want his books to have simplistic, moralistic stories. He's trying to show you the wonder of youth. And he does that in all his books. Why are they pulled? In the, in the Mulberry Street book written in 1937, there is the picture of the Indian man on the, on the elephant, which you and I will think it could be our grandfather. I mean, that's when my grandfather was a young man in those years. Mm -hmm. um, so is mine, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's depicted in a way that, um, you know, probably not like how my grandfather rode around in India. There's a Chinese boy who eats with sticks, a, a little small picture in the corner of one page of that book, Mulberry Street. Um, and in the McElligott's pool book, I think the problematic image is there's a fish that he calls an Eskimo fish in the Arctic. Um, and it, and it is depicted as a, um, sort of stereotypical, like the, the top, the, the head of the fish is kind of stereotypical, but the body of the fish is a fish body. Of course, there's right. no such thing as an Eskimo fish. So, you know, it's a caricature. Um, and, and, and those caricatures, um, you know, are potentially offensive to some people. And I don't discount that. And I suspect, you know, I, I can see why, you know, I see this Indian photo. I like, oh, it's not, it doesn't mm. look like my grandfather. Right. Um, but, but I think that if you focus on the parts of art that don't endure, you throw away the parts of art that are transcendent and for all time. And these books are not books about caricaturing an Indian, caricaturing a Chinese boy. They're not books that are intended to make Indians in the future feel pain. It's books that intend to show a child grappling between imagination and the constraint of being honest. And that's something that we all grow up, grow up with. It's, it's a deep human truth. And so if you start to say, you can't, we're not going to print this book. And by the way, they say, we're not going to print this book because also it's not selling well. It sold 5,000 copies. Mm. I hate to say, as somebody who's written two books, if they stop selling books that sell less than 5,000 copies. We're not, getting, <laughs> we're not, we're not printing those books. VP's, yeah. VP's books aren't doing so fucking hot. <laughs> I'm like, this, my, my fucking books are not going to sell, man. I was like, buy that book. Man. It's malignant and ending medical reversal. They're going to cancel this book anytime. It could be a collector's item. You never know. Buy the books. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. I was like, 5,000 is pretty, it's actually pretty decent. Okay. I was like, shit. That, hurt, that hit close to home when they said that. But to me, it's also like, I don't know. This is not what, I don't know. I, I just don't agree. So I don't agree with not selling it. I, I, you know, I'm sitting here wrapped by your descriptions of these books because what you're describing, I, I recently, I've been reading this book written by a physician. He hasn't released it yet. He wants me to read it and see what I think. And it's a book on spirituality, on, on recognizing your true nature. And there's a mm -hmm. quote in there where he says, adults are the corpses of children. Mm. And 
As adults, we look at children with resentment because mm. of we see what we've lost. Yeah, that's yeah? Cool. yeah. And this description of Seuss, now what do we do? As adults, the dominant paradigm is wokeness. Well, we have to silence anything that could hurt people's feelings at any cost because that's the dominant paradigm. So instead of integrating our shadow, saying, yeah, this is how people used to caricature people in the past. Aren't you so glad we don't do that anymore? Mm -hmm. Here's why it's wrong, Timmy, but look at the beautiful parts of this book. We try to delete it because we are corpses. (laughs) We no longer can imagine a world where the, that could have existed. We won't, accept it, we can't integrate it into who we are to be a better person, we have to deny it and then the shadow lives in us still. And that's why I will die saying that the most racist people I've met are the ones that are overtly the most woke Mm. because they deny the part of them that they've never integrated. So- And then the other part of this analogy that fits that adults are the corpses of children is that the book reveals the mind of a child that is a corpse in you. How many days do I wake up and have these thoughts? When I was young, when I was a kid, I remember, I had the thoughts that all sorts of things could happen. Yeah. Life was full of possibility. Open. I'm an, I'm an old man now, I don't have those <laughs> thoughts. It's the practical, it's the mundane, it's yeah. filled my thinking. Yeah. Um, the book, it allows you to get a glimpse into the mind of a child. Uh, it's beautiful. It's it, really not an, it's really, like I say, it's not an average book, it's, it's a work of art. So you're banning art. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, that's why in Zen they call it beginner's mind. You have to approach the present moment as a blank <clears throat> with your conditioning drops away. Yeah. That's children do that naturally. Yeah. I had a conversation with my nine-year-old the other morning. I was meditating and she caught me. She always does this. She comes stumbling down with her little bunny. She's sniffing it and she comes and sits on my lap while I'm in this like meditative state. Oh, and I, I asked her and I said, do you ever get the sense that like all these rules and everything that is just a kind of an, kind of not real, like it's kind of like a dream. Like, can you distinguish reality from a dream? And she goes, no, I think it's all like a dream. (laughs) And like, and she had this conversation with me where I was like, holy shit, Uh this is how kids think. Uh We could, we could, instead of, you know, banning that and trying to corpsify ourselves, we could integrate that and celebrate that. And and Seuss did that. That's why he was so popular. Yeah. Did, and and, yeah. and um, I don't know, all books written in 1937 have some objectionable oh, elements. All and of it. I don't know. I mean, it's not even the only, I mean. The biology books did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of it did. It's, you will lose a lot of literature if you hold it to the 2020 standard. Oh yeah. You'll, it, it'll crush the canon. Crush books that the point of the book is, is that you can acknowledge those imperfections that we have moved. Um, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And they use the N word. I mean, exactly. It, it's Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. It, uh, it, this is not, again, it's this is witch hunt kind of groupthink philosophy. We can't have it. So some, somebody, you know, we have to make noise when these things happen. Now, now, now people will say, well, like you said, they'll say, well, but it's no, it's not censorship. It's just, it wasn't selling. So we're not printing it. Then why is eBay banning even selling it? Then? Yeah, that's one point. Yeah. And the next point is that um, I suspect that that is a disingenuous statement because um, it, it, I think I think it is probably likely still profitable for them to print that book. I doubt that if those sales, it is actually unprofitable. I say that as somebody who has written some books that are selling less than that, that <laughs> <laughs> I hope are profitable because I think they're they're not profitable to me because I only got like a dollar a book and they haven't sold a lot of copies. But they're profitable to the 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 um, publisher, publisher, which makes yeah. like twenty bucks a book. Um, and and I don't know. Um, 
it, it, there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of related issues, which is one like, you know, well, why does the Seuss estate still have the copyright on this book? Like maybe it should have it lapsed earlier so that it would be the public domain so anyone could print the book. I don't know the answers to these questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are broader uh, sociopolitical questions than my skill set. But I do think, you know, I just want to say, you know, it's a shame. Mm -hmm. It's a shame that we are in a society where, um, you know, a, a book, albeit imperfect, that still has something to add is um, just pushed pushed aside. And that we, we we did it without, you know, 10 years ago, no no liberal I know would have been supportive of, of banning books in any context. It's the most illiberal. Yeah, it's an illiberal. It really yeah. is. It's a regressive tendency. I think again, and I to go back to the shadow metaphor, it is, it is a shadow element of the current mainstream culture yeah. that says, okay, these are good things. Multiculturalism is good. Getting rid of racism is good. Of course. Increasing widening circles of acceptance is good. There's even some aspects of postmodern thought that I think are good, that, that there is a relative view that does matter based on the perspective of like, you know, I may not like Thai food. Uh, actually, I love Thai food. I'll give it another example. I know I love all food. Forget that example. But maybe you're talking about that guy, um, what's his name, Tom, some reporter who said something like, um, somebody said, uh, it was like a, somebody tweeted something like, tweet something con tweet something that people will think is controversial. Mm. That was a tweet. And then he quote tweeted and said, Indian food is no good. Mm. And I think all he meant by that is, I don't like Indian food. Right. Oh my God, you remember? He got like yeah, 15,000. All kinds of hate. God. Why? I mean- but but again, this is a this is the pathology of the shadow element of our current pluralistic culture, and that that means that people who formerly felt like I am a liberal, a classic liberal, look at that and go, "But I'm very uncomfortable with this. This is this is censorship. This is it's very censorship. illiberal behavior." And you know, you can say whatever you want that like, uh, well, it's not censored by government; it's censored by the publisher. They have the right, right to do it. Right. These are all fine things to say, but I'm, what I'm saying is that it, it's a problem in the culture yeah. where you feel that this is necessary, and actually. Um, government censorship is, uh, ironically, in this case, is easier to grapple with and easier to combat than this nebulous, how many people actually want the book published? How many people don't? We don't even know. Yeah. We don't even know. And and some voices make it harder for other voices to articulate their feelings here. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are silent. They would be um, hesitant to even comment, scared to comment. Maybe they'll lose their job, I think. And that's a crazy place to be. You know, um, uh, when I graduated high school, my AP English teacher, um, Demetra Chamberlain, gave yeah. I mean, this that's a education, man. Yeah. Like it, people forget they they are like they're like surgeons. They're operating on the young mind and changing it. And you remember them? She gave me a book, uh, "Oh, the Places You'll Go" by Dr. Seuss. Of course, yeah. Classic and she signed it and said, you know, because I was going to Berkeley, which was her alma mater, and and I mean, I remember every page of that book and. Two Christmases ago, I live streamed me reading a book. I'm forgetting the name of it. It was about Christmas, Dr. Seuss talking about old people on Christmas. And it was so applicable to like hospice palliative care, like how we treat elders and all of that. And I mean, Seuss is a powerful dude. It's crazy that any aspect of him would be delegitimized in any way. I mean, yeah. I without think... proper analysis, without saying, well, this part of it was not, doesn't hold up, but- the rest of it, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I could I tell you. I got. I got some more stories about it, but I'll tell you some other day. Uh, let's talk about Vivek Murthy before we finish. Oh yeah. Now, so here's the thing. So my bias is Vivek is a friend. He's been on the show. He's a lovely human being, and you took a shit on him. <laughs> and uh, so tell us why, because I think this is actually not about Vivek. It's about the influence of money 
in our in our space and public service, you, you've written about it in pharmaceuticals forever. Yeah. So tell us about this. So I guess what, first I want to say what exactly what you said, which is that like I, I've never met the guy, I've never had any interaction with him, and uh, I've got no ill will to him as a person. And in fact, everyone who I know who knows him, because I you know I'm only one link away in, in my social circles, they all say he's a wonderful guy, super nice guy, and I don't doubt that he's a nice guy. I mean, I'm happy to concede he's a nice guy. Um, that's not even my close to what what my issue is here. Right. My issue is um, conflict of interest. Mm. And I guess I would say that, you know, I'm rather consistent on this issue. Like I'm not a fan of conflict of interest any day of the week. This I'm not a fan thing. on Monday. I'm not a fan of it on Tuesday. I'm <laughs> sounds never... like a Seuss thing. Yeah, it sounds like a Seuss I do thing. not like conflict of interest. <laughs> I do not like it on my Pinterest. I do not. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that's no cool. formal training. No formal training. Except for years of parody writing and formal training. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, what happened? I, 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 the issue is this. The issue is that Vivek Murthy was a Surgeon General under Obama for a few years. Um, and then afterwards, he went into retired Surgeon General life. Um, and the pandemic hit. And uh, he ended up giving a lecture at the DNC or something. He had some stage presence at the DNC in that, that Zoom meeting that was the Democratic National Convention. He wrote a book on loneliness, too. He wrote a book on, yeah, yeah, together or something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he was renominated by Biden to be Surgeon General again, which is unusual, very unusual. This is not, this is an unusual nomination because Biden said, you know, he's not gonna be a regular Surgeon General, the kind of person who tells you don't smoke and eat well and exercise more, the typical Surgeon General kind of stuff. He's also gonna have an expanded scope of authority and be able to help shape COVID-19 policy. In fact, I think he was the head of the Biden COVID-19 task force. Task by the force that's right, yeah. Um, that's an important role because federal COVID-19 policy has implications for many businesses. For instance, under what conditions would you recommend people stay home? What is the aerosol standards going to be in, I don't know, say a cruise ship, uh, you know, things like that, you know, OSHA aerosol standards and things like that. So he's got a big role to play. Um, as in the year prior to him coming to this nomination convention, he did some consulting work um, and it was a bit odd. Uh, he's gotten 800 grand from Airbnb. If you go to the Airbnb website, I was there recently, but oh, obviously I wasn't thinking about going on vacation. But oh, no, because that you're going to get canceled. That would, be, that would be wrong. That's right. That's right. You're going to be worse than Sue. I was, I was just looking as I normally look at the Airbnb yeah. website. Yeah. M malignant and reversing medical. Uh, <laughs> they're both going to be out of print all of a People sudden. People will be like, oh, you know, it never sold more than 5,000 copies. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> He started his his paragraphs with a number. That's what Marty was saying, or something like that. He, he, oh. Like that. That's why the journals told him that he couldn't be published because he started a paragraph with a number. Oh, Marty. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um. So so yeah, this guy Vivek. He took um eight hundred thousand dollars from Airbnb. If you go to the Airbnb website, it says like our rooms are cleaned by like the Surgeon General recommended protocol. And I was like, what exactly is that? Like, because there's no magic cleaning for. Sorry, obviously, <laughs> open the window when you clean. <laughs> all right, all right. But anyway, he sanctioned the Airbnb cleaning protocol, five-step protocol or something. Um, he consulted 400 grand from Carnival Cruise Line, 600 grand from Netflix. Uh, I saw these conflicts because they were reported by Dan Diamond at the Washington Post. And I was like, oh boy, that's mm. not good. Um, there is a conflict of interest where you, um, you put yourself in a financial situation where you have allegiance to two different masters. Uh, in this case, one would be what is in the best public interest. The other would be, hey, Carnival Cruise Line just gave you a ton of cash, 400 grand to consult for them. And now you're shaping aerosol standards that may impact their cruise industry. So the temptation would be to kind of, you know, downplay that a little bit. Uh, Netflix, they have a vested interest in, in COVID policy because they are happy. I think I would suspect they're happy to have you stay at home. Uh, mm. except they got to get out to film their new shows. So they want exemptions for their filming. 
So they're playing it on both ends. They're playing yeah. on both. Yeah. Oh. And um, Airbnb, they want the uh, you know he's really just selling his brand. Uh, he's mm -hmm. selling the the office of the Surgeon General to so they can stamp that their the places are clean. Um, so I saw these conflicts. And I remembered that this isn't my first rodeo with conflicts. There's other people who had conflicts. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, when he was running for commissioner, he had received a lot of money from pharmaceutical industry, I think like 300 grand. And Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, took him to task in that meeting. She said, how can you impartially regulate the industry that has given you so much money? And here, Dan Diamond called the office of, of Senator Warren for a comment. No comment. Mm -hmm. None can be provided. All my liberal colleagues who historically were very critical of Trump's uh, swamp this sort of revolving door politics, they were dead silent on Vivek Murthy. So one, I was offended because conflict of interest, I think, is a deep problem. This mm. revolving door between industry and government service uh, is a disservice to the impartial adjudication of government actions. I don't like it, and I think we need to diminute it. Um, that was one. But two, the hypocrisy bothered me. The yeah. same, if you're going to pick Gottlieb and, and rip him apart, then Murthy should be subject to the same treatment. And in fact, I would say... Um, somebody said, well, this kind of stuff is common. You know, Janet Yellen consulted for Goldman Sachs. She's a treasury secretary. That's common. I was like, I'll tell you what, I'm pretty sure that there ain't no surgeon general in history who got 400 grand from a cruise line industry. I'm pretty sure that like never happened because the cruise ships aren't in the surgeon general consulting business. Well, you know, uh, uh, Jocelyn Elders uh, took about $400,000 from big masturbation. <laughs> Yeah, I no, but like, you're right. I don't think that's probably. Happened. I don't think that's yeah. like in their yeah. in their thing. Um, yeah. So I mean, the that it 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 stinks of quid pro quo. It stinks of we're giving you this money for to curry a favor in the future. Um, the other point to make is that like you know he doesn't have to be Surgeon General again. There are hundreds of public health experts who, unsurprisingly to you and I, have probably never received any money from industry because industry is not in the public health. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're not throwing money at you know exactly. Yeah. It's some public health expert. Yeah, here's all this cash to consult. No, it's not really that kind of business. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of people who could do it. He didn't need to do it. Democrats, if they allowed it, and I guess they've allowed it. It's it's gone through. Um, they 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 have uh, I think uh, very little leg to stand on. Um, they have they'll be viewed as hypocrites. And so the next time a different politician will want to nominate somebody to be head of the EPA who prior to running the EPA, they were literally pouring chemicals into swamps. And somebody will say, and he got all this money from the chemical swamp industry, you know? And then somebody's gonna say like, that guy shouldn't be the head of the EPA. He's in the dumping chemicals and swamps, you know, industry. And then you're gonna be like, well, you know, your guy, Carnival Cruise and at Netflix, and then he ran the COVID policy. It's all the same, um, you know? And I, so I think that, that that will likely happen. And I think, um, I wouldn't blame anyone for saying that. I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, and then the next thing I think is imagine you know, there is some COVID policy. One of these scariants actually mm. pops up, you know. Pops, mm. uh, yeah. Variant schmerians. Variant schmerians, yeah. <laughs> Imagine, but something happens and and somebody says like, okay, we're going to lock down again. Uh, well, one, I think in this country, we're going to be deeply divided. People don't want to okay. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a rough thing yeah. to suggest. But let's say somebody says lockdown again. And then let's say you find out the person who said lockdown again, I'm not talking about Morthy. Let's just say hypothetically, you got to lock down again in your house. Stay home, stay at home order. And you find out that person is getting money from Amazon Prime, Uber Eats, DoorDash. Netflix, DoorDash. Can you imagine how you're going to feel? Mm. Especially where you come from, where I come from, Laporte, Indiana, you know, rural Indiana. How are those people going to feel? You're telling me I got to stay in my house and you're getting money from the delivery service? 
their heads are going to explode. Are you kidding me? The perception of conflict here is even worse than the typical industry FDA conflict because you're talking about taking away liberties that have never been taken away in the history of the Republic and you're talking about doing unprecedented government action. You need to be squeaky fucking clean when you get into that job. You can't be like this. And I see on Twitter, people defended him. They said, well, he's a nice guy. I like him. That is beside the point. It's not about the person. These institutions have greater meaning than any one person. You can replace him with someone else. He doesn't bring any special magic gift to the Surgeon General job, though. Lots of people can do it. So I find it distasteful. I, the hypocrisy, will, it, it, it's not good for politics. I think you, you don't have a leg to stand on. I'm no longer going to take seriously anybody who voted to confirm him on conflict of interest ever because they're happy to overlook it when it suits them. And that to me is uh, a crime. I mean, that's to me is why, you know, I, I frankly don't like politicians. You know, that's why nobody likes politicians. They're hypocrites. Look, uh, I agree with everything you say about conflict. I'm not gonna say anything about Vivek because he's, he's my friend, but I'm gonna yeah. say this. Um, that this idea that money doesn't influence us or favors don't influence us is absolute bullshit. It influences us consciously and subconsciously. When I was training in the late 90s at Stanford, Pfizer would provide our noon conference lunch and there would be the rep detailing <clears throat> us on Norvask or Viagra or whatever it was they were pitching at the yeah. time. Now those reps became our friends because they were there every lunch and they would hang out and they would chat, they would bring us food, they would teach us about the drugs and I started noticing what was happening. I'm like, well, you know, if I'm choosing between Norvask and, uh, you know, some other, yeah. you know, I, I'm just gonna pick Norvask because, you know, Chuck's a nice guy. Yeah. And also they took me to dinner and, but, you know, and it seems like the company's pretty cool. I mean, Pfizer seems pretty cool because, you know, yeah. it's insidious, dude. Yeah. And then you wake up later and you go, Jesus Christ. Like if you actually look at the data he was giving you, the difference in number needed to treat between this drug and the cheap generic yeah. is like, you have to treat like 10,000 people to see one benefit. Like this is a scam. And then you get outraged and then you hate yourself yeah. for being so easily played. Suck for, for a little meal. You know, it's funny. You're, so you're talking about uh, industry detailing around calcium channel blockers. This is, I believe a New England Journal paper or somebody has to check me from the 1990s where they actually studied this phenomenon. Yeah. No. The industry put a lot of money into CCBs because CCBs were on patent and very lucrative. Whereas thiazide diuretics, which again, by the way, still More mainstay of therapy. Mainstay. Yeah. Um, they uh, they uh, wanted to move people to CCBs. And I think I, I, it's been a long time since this paper came out. Like, I think uh, someone had to check me, 96, 97. Um, but uh, I think it does in fact show that there was a, a, a link between these two things. Um, but, but what you're saying reminds me of my other argument, which is how can you tell a medical resident, which we've told them that we're not going to have drug lunches anymore. Mm. Why? Because if you got that sandwich from, you know, Subway mm. paid for by GlaxoSmithKline, potential that'll affect your medical career and you know it could it could influence you because you know there's some data that suggests that that's likely to be the case um but the surgeon general of the united states can take you know two million dollars <laughs> in cash from all these companies and run covid policy like the messaging is yeah terrible and you know yeah. i've i actually i don't know as, as passionately as i feel about conflict of interest i've tried to move my research team away from it a little bit because i feel like we're fighting uh, against the ocean we're losing and i don't know if we're making a difference i feel like people don't care Everyone in power, they get more cash from doing this stuff, so they don't want to fix it. Um, they're happy to make excuses for why it doesn't matter. Um, we're happy to enforce it in like trainees, but we don't give a shit when it's like the guy in charge of the whole thing. So, I mean, we're hypocrites. We don't care about it. People deny its influence. 
Um, I, I've written so many papers on it. I feel like I'm making no headway. So I'm like, I don't know. What, what am I going to do? I just give up on it. You keep talking about it the way you are. You think I keep talking about yeah, it? Yeah, you have to keep talking about it because I mean- I, I've been doing it for 10 years. You got to keep going. It's like banging your head against a wall because what you're resisting, what you're running up against is tremendous power and money. Yeah. And, and that's going to resist everything. But if we don't, you know, it, it's like Sam Shem who wrote House of God yeah. says he wrote- House of God from a place of resistance. Mm. He saw what was happening. He screamed into the void. His way of screaming into the void was writing a book. He didn't think anyone was gonna read it. It became one, it became a, a, a catalyst for changing work hour rules and some of the culture of medicine because he kept talking about it. And he found his art form and your art form is podcasting and writing books. And so you gotta keep doing it. And the, thing, the interesting thing about Murthy that's, that's interesting is that, like you said, it's unusual. He left yeah, yeah. and when everyone leaves government, they go and do this shit. Of course. They, they cash in. It's like known. It's like you, you, you come into government to do good and you stay because you're doing well yeah. and then you leave because you can do even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, but the, the fact that he's back in the same position means now he's dragging that well, I would say one thing. I suspect, and I, it would be very difficult to show because the, the, the sample size is small, but I suspect that the average Surgeon General, post-Surgeon General, they can make some money, yeah. give some lectures, talk about don't smoking, talk about eat more fruits and vegetables. I don't think they're pulling down two mil in a year. I doubt it. Mm. I doubt they're pulling down that kind of cash. You don't. You only pull down that kind of cash when you're not just a former Surgeon General, you're the guy who spoke at the DNC who's very likely to be shaping COVID policy. And then you're gonna be pulling down some serious cash from people who have a strong interest in getting that policy to go one way and not the other. Mm. And um, so I suspect that, the, that unlike the typical situation, the, the smell of quid pro quo is, is more. That's important, yeah. that's important. You know, cause I, I remember doing a talk and Jocelyn Elders was opening for me, former Surgeon General. And she's your opening act. She was my opening act. <laughs> and you know, she did a great talk on, um, on equity actually. It was oh, really well her. done. You know, she showed a beautiful slide of like, here's a fence. And uh, here's a kid that's really short, and here's a tall kid that just sees right over the fence. Oh, I see. Yeah, and like you can either put like boxes under the short kid to get him over the fence, you know, or you can knock the fence down. I see. And yes, that allows equal opportunity, not equal outcome, equal opportunity. And it was a very powerful talk, actually. Um, and she referred to me as Z Dog, which was just, I was like, you t I learned about masturbation from you. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that it was just as good as abstinence <laughs> or whatever she got deleted from Bill Clinton's. Yeah, that was that, that was her undoing. And yeah. uh, before that, C. Everett Coop was oh, the smoking. Yeah. Um, you know, they've all, Surgeon Generals have always had these kind of um, ceremonial roles. Right. That's the other thing. Somebody said like, oh, it's a ceremonial role anyway. And I was like, if it's a ceremonial role anyway, why do you want the person who's got conflicts? I mean, you can right. find somebody ceremonial what, who's what, free. Of why have even then a, a con, have a confirmation hearing uh, if it's true. ceremonial? Well, you know? I guess that's the Senate procedure. But yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. But why also have him run the um, the task force? Yeah. Anyway, but you know, you mentioned House of God, and uh, we were talking about books. But that's a book that also, in some ways, is not aged perfectly, has it not? Oh you know, no, it's, oh, of women. it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah, in that sense. In that sense. Yeah, the depictions of sex and women yes. and objectification. It yes. was written in 1978, yes. but it was based on stuff that happened earlier to him. Yeah. And by the way, so full disclosure, Shem is a friend. I can imagine. But he, and he's been on the show and he talks about this. He yeah. actually has gone full like feminist relational theory in his newer books because he recognized even, and his wife is like a, mm -hmm. a Buddhist um, uh, teacher. And so he's grown a lot. So. Why would you delete the previous work? That's what I'm saying. You, you allow for the growth. You allow for the growth and let people yeah. see the growth. And yes. you know what? And that's a great example of a book that uh, 
still imperfect, still also resonates a little bit. Oh, you know, yeah. I read it um, as a student. Uh, I read it again as at the end of my intern year. And I think I took a vacation. Uh, I'm, I'm picturing, I was like reading on a sandy beach, reading that book. And um, not only does it evoke certain things, but for those of us who've lived the experience of being an intern, when you read that book again, it really forces you to take stock of uh, how tough that year was. Yeah. Um, and so it, it provides some emotional value to people who read it, even acknowledging that in many ways it does not reflect the culture of when I trained, you know, in the 2010s. Right. Um, so that's the power of literature. It's the similarities and differences. It's not always, uh, you know, sugar-coated, perfect by modern morality standards. Absolutely. And yeah. even Shem says that he threw in all the sex and stuff for entertainment, for entertainment value. Nice. Because back then that's how you did it, you know? <laughs> It was like MASH era, you yeah. know, and uh, it, it, it's it's really fascinating and to, to watch society march on, but yet so many, like you said, I read that in my second year of residency and it just framed everything. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, but yeah, you look at the other silly stuff and listen, we're not idiots. You can look at the stuff that doesn't apply and go, man, that was another time and let it go. That's what we ought to be training our kids to do is yeah. go kind of think critically. You don't buy everything at face value. You also don't get lost in the sauce. You, you have to look at what's relevant and reject the shadow or integrate it or whatever it is, the psychologists say, the Jungian psychologists say. So yeah, I think, I don't know, isn't that like, that's a principle that transcends all these things. You can read Emily Oster. You can see wisdom in her as I see. You can disagree with her, yeah, but you don't need to go on Twitter and Dude. say she's killing people <laughs> or that she's an economist, doesn't know anything. You can read Dr. Seuss. You can see some images that I think are problematic. I'm yeah. not going to say they're not. Yeah. Um, you can also see that the theme and the growth of a character over 10 years, those books are 10 years apart, um, and that they're written in a different era, and the parents of that era were different people, mm. and that parenting has changed, children have changed. But the mere fact that the parent is letting little Marco out on the street for all hours of the day, that's changed. Free-range kids, yeah. Free-range kids, right. So all these things have changed. So you can see the artistry of the book. You can also see the downsides, but you don't need to suppress them from print. You can read Marty's piece. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. Um, but you don't need to ask Facebook to de-throttle it while you simultaneously allow all sorts of crackpot ideas on your platform, which by the way, I didn't say my solution to Facebook is, of course, you crack it into pieces. I think it's a monopolistic corporation. They are engaged in information hijacking. I think it will someday be viewed like tobacco smoke, that it is an addictive product. And I think they need to be broken up by federal regulators. They need to be cracked into little pieces. And when you crack them into pieces, then suddenly the risk for these pizza gates and this kind of thing is gonna diminute overnight. They're not gonna have a single network where they can spread crazy ideas to lots of people. You so, know, okay, yeah. first of all, fuck you. You just demonetized my video on <laughs> Oh, you're right. I probably did. Okay. I'm sorry. Thank you for, sorry. I will edit this out. I'm not. I'm gonna send, I get Carnival Cruise to come. <laughs> <laughs> Make it up for you. Actually, up. I wanna double down on what you said yeah. because I think I agree with you. Mm. I think that the, any individual large monopolistic information cash can fuck with everybody in a way. And as it is, the algorithms have destroyed our ability to have civil discourse. They do. Yeah. They prey on polarization, they make money on it. And that, that's why, so I was just actually independently was gonna tell you more about that Locals platform. Yes. So it's interesting. Um, so locals.com, I got pitched on this thing. It's like Dave Rubin, like co-founded it with an Israeli guy. And so I was like, oh, that's not gonna be polarizing, right? But yet the premises, People, it's either free or paid, okay. and creators set up a tribe there where you can join if you like the creator's vibe and you feel like you're gonna be among like minds, but also be challenged. And the the entire algorithm, there is no algorithm. 
The algorithm is you like the creator, you join their tribe. The creator makes material and the audience makes material yeah, and posts nice. it up. And the way people behave, my crowd in there, so if you go to like zdogmd.locals.com, you can see it. If you're a supporter, then you get the more private stuff. Yeah. So people have skin in the game. So they're like, well, I'm paying to be here. So I'm not gonna be a dick to the other guy who's paying yeah. to be here because I don't wanna get kicked out and yeah. I don't wanna be the guy that's a, the asshole. People post some provocative stuff, but they always frame it as, hey, you know, this is how I feel. I'm very upset by this. I understand if you're not, but I need to vent and put this here. On Facebook, it would be like, can you fucking believe this? Bah! And then hate and love and hate and love. Here, it's like, if you disagree, you just go, oh, yeah, that's all right. I'm gonna scroll on. This is not something I wanna get into. And the discussions, like the level of conversation, the, the level of acceptance, the level of support is through the roof. That's one shard of a Facebook that spins off. Yes, exactly. I see, right. Yes, you see what I'm saying? Yes, I see what so you're saying. Yes. You're right. Break it into the pieces that provide value on their own instead of trying to be one thing for everyone. Yeah. And it works, dude. Like I I hate social media. I'm not a user of social media. I noticed that. I'm a pusher of social media. Yeah. Like I'll go on fa on Twitter, drop a piece of feces there and then run like hell. Like I don't even look at what's happening. I'm like, shit, <laughs> I'm out. I'm like, I'm like Forrest Gump, just blade hands, just running. And, but yet on locals, I will dig in and I'll be like, what did they say? Oh, this is a fascinating angle. I disagree, but let me, let me leave a very conscious I, comment. That's interesting. You know, yeah. I, I, you're, you're talking me into it, but I also, um, I've tried to reuse, uh, so I try to change how I use social media a little bit. I'll give you mm. just one brief example. Um, I don't know. I think there, there's, there's a professor who, who disagrees with me on a handful of issues. Mm. I think he's taking a little too personally because the other day on Sunday <laughs> night, he like dropped some shit to like troll me. Oh. Uh, like something personal, like something critical of me, like a joke at my expense. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. But more of a personal nature than about any of the issues we disagree. And I was like, you know what? It's not really, I mean, I could say something. I, I'm happy to make some snide comment back and then I'll get my likes and he'll get his like, I'm like, oh God. Is we gonna do the game this? goes the on. The game goes on, you know, and we fight for another. Okay. But I was like, let's not do that. Let me do something different. And I was like, let me make a little thread about where we agree and where we disagree over the course of the pandemic to let maybe readers get a sense of like, well, why did he feel the urge to make this joke at my expense? Mm. Um, because he doesn't know me personally. I've never right, right, know, right, spilled right. coffee in his lap or something. You know, like I've never so, slighted him personally. Right, 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 right. It's um, all virtual. It's all virtual. And it's all based primarily because I think, I mean, the root of the anxiety, the disagreement is that we disagree on substantive issues. So, you know, I was like issue number one. John Yonides came out and I wrote this thing saying we need to hear the voices of people who think right. that prolonged lockdown may be problematic. And I think he is somebody who genuinely thinks that prolonged lockdown is reasonable and that that if you even entertain those concerns that you know, bad things will happen. The second thing, the Santa Clara study, he mm -hmm. thinks that there are mathematical errors in John's paper. And I concede that those errors exist, but I think that the demonizing of the person is not helpful for the broader conversation. And even though that those errors existed in the early version, you know, the paper and still provides value and he still has a point on other issues. Three, you know, um, what was it? I think Marty's thing was one, you know, because there are a lot of people who call themselves liberal who are fine with big companies in an absolutely opaque manner suppressing speech. Uh, I'm not cool with that, but, you know, they're cool with that. And But that's a point of disagreement. And then I put this like list together of things we disagree. And I think I'm going to try to do that more, not with obviously everybody who trolls me. I can't even do, I mean, I, I spend my life, but with like people who I think are, I don't know, Re, like within the academy, they actually are like real people. They have their real name and face. Mm. Um, if there is this kind of snipping, I'm going to try to not snip. I'm going to try to articulate for a third party. Here are the six times we've disagreed over the last five years. Um, 
you, you know, you may not agree with me, you may agree with the other person, but let's try to move this away from- Person and to issue. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's, 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 that's, that's wonderful. Did, did you do, what was your response? What was the response to that? Nobody liked it, nobody retweeted it. Fuck yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. And, and, you, <laughs> and you nailed the problem. Because Twitter, the social media doesn't reward rational, I call it alt middle. It just means integrating all these different ideas. <laughs> thought. I mean, it's crazy. That that. that oh my god, man. It's, and he and he didn't engage with it. So it's like, of course oh, not, yeah, because it's too hard to engage on issues. It's very easy to engage ad hominem. I'm guilty of it all the time, especially when I early days, especially when I was dealing with anti-vaxxers. They just trigger me so much because. I really feel strongly about that issue emotionally too, because you know you see one kid who's had a preventable illness and you get very upset, but they'll say, well, you've seen one kid who has vaccine injury. And then you start to drill down, well, is it really vaccine injury? And then you get in your head and, and how about this? Hey, we agree, we want children to be safe. Yeah. We agree that pharma is not perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we agree that science isn't done perfectly. We agree there's no perfect answer. So now let's start with our agreements and then we'll start to hash it out. And and lately that's been helpful with people who are on the fence about vaccines who will message me and say, oh, you actually convinced me because you didn't discount instantly me as a bad person for even questioning. I've, I have I feel a lot like you. Um, my issues are different, but my issue was like, um, you know, when I started in faculty in like 2015, I came out on Twitter guns blazing that like some new cancer drug that improved survival one month that cost like $200,000 and had all this horrible side effects. I was like, I would go there and I'd see like experts say how wonderful it was and a miracle. And like my, I would be like, oh, what are you talking about? I was like, it's too expensive. It doesn't offer enough to patients. It's so toxic. The trial is flawed in like innumerable ways. Mm. It doesn't extrapolate to real world patients who are older, frailer, racially diverse. I had all these criticisms and I would go in real hot and like blow that topic up. Uh, although I would always try not to like insult them, but you know, of course we all slip, you know, all, oh, you know, yeah. we're always oh, slipper, yeah. slippery, slippery. But now I, I don't know. I'm, I, I feel like, well, I don't know. I, oh, and of course they're all conflicted. They're getting paid by the company while they're doing that. So that oh, of course, it, of course yeah, irritates yeah. me even more. Um, but now I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to let myself, my emotions be ruled by them. So I think about what they're saying. I think I see why it's wrong and not helpful. And then I think to myself, like, okay, imagine that fellow out there looking at this. They're being influenced by this nonsense about this cancer drug, which I think has, the trial is terrible. How might I change their mind? Because I'm not gonna change this person's mind. Um, I need to change their mind. And so that's why I started making a podcast and you know, write, try to write this book that, you know, less than 5,000 people have read. <laughs> <laughs> you started a sentence with a number, dude. You can't do that. <laughs> I think you put your finger right on it, which is you're not who, who, if, you're, if your goal is to persuade because you believe in something, yeah. it, it's no point going full on against the person who's already got their own yeah. belief. You're trying to influence those people that are listening. And that, that with vaccines, that's a great example because how are you gonna influence people if you tribalize it even more? You're only gonna rally your own people, which is very rewarding on I Facebook say and Twitter. The, the only thing about the vaccines that I think um, is a missed opportunity is that, um, People who want to be advocates for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, I put myself in the camp because I've received it and I think it's good. We have to be honest about the different thinking around children and adults. Yeah. And if we are not honest about that, and yeah. I see on Twitter every day. Oh, they want oh, kids to get vaccinated. Oh my God, and they haven't even seen the data. Yeah. And I was like, if you already, your role yeah. is already, everyone must get vaccinated, including young children. You haven't seen the data yeah. and the risk benefit is gonna be substantively different. We need yeah. to see the AEs, we need to see all this stuff. 
I think you're 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 not helping your cause. You're helping the other side because they're saying you're a zealot. You're a zealot in the other direction. You're not an impartial observer of science. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the, the saving grace of persuasion is being persuadable yourself. Oh, well said. So. You know, in the early days of the vaccine development, I'm like, there's no way this is happening. You got to really convince me that this is going to happen in a safe and effective way that isn't politicized, that, you know, that it doesn't have conflicts. And then slowly but surely I was persuaded, but then I'm still not persuaded that children should get this vaccine. I haven't seen data that tells me that's the case. Yeah, the ongoing studies, to my knowledge, use immunologic endpoints. They're not right. using clinical endpoints. Um, we'll see what the AEs are. I mean, it, and- Adverse and events adverse for events, people right, who don't know, for, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then- um, and then the 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 absolute potential benefit is contingent on how bad the illness is at the age group. Correct. And we're talking about something that span that has a steep age gradient. Yep. Maybe three or four log difference. So, oh, so there's the, the line in Emily Oster's thing where she talks about the probability that a child will die if they get COVID. Jesus, a percentage of how much less that is than an adult. She's looking at that age gradient and and drawing an extrapolation from that. Uh, um. Anyway, we're going. I mean, we're it going it that's the thing, you know, you worry when you see a zealot, even now when I wanna fact check something that's my intuition, yes. I have to stop myself from going to my <clears throat> zealot of choice. Yes. You know, because I know what they're gonna say. Yes. You know, like, like I know what Gorski's gonna say about this guy Vandenbush. He's gonna say he's a shilling a new vaccine and he's wrong on all these ways. And I'm like, okay, well, there's some useful stuff there. But at the same time, when I watched the Vonden, the, the Basha video, I watched with rapt attention because he's actually bringing up points that I've thought about myself with the vaccine, which is, okay, well, in a rapidly um, rapidly uh, replicating viral load in the pandemic and you introduce a vaccine that we know variants can escape eventually, eventually, it's just gonna take a long time and it's not gonna be as fast as we think, but. Is that gonna be problematic if you're partially vaccinating people with like say one dose or you're only some of the populations vaccinated? And then what about, um, are we too late? Have we already gotten enough immunity from natural infection? These are questions that you should ask. Sure. And then debate it. Yeah. So I listened quite open, open-mindedly, but what's interesting is then you kind of, because you have a bias, like I actually disagree with him, you're watching him go off the rails towards the end. He starts saying things like, this is gonna create a monstrosity. We need to, nobody's listening to me. Oh boy. Nobody's talking about <laughs> this. And then you're like, okay, there's the conspiracy thinking. Yeah. And now we're wondering, is he nobody, a fake expert? And then we're wondering, God. are they gonna move the goalposts? And then you're wondering, are there logical fallacies? There are, and then you're, and then all the signs of true mistaken misinformation start to emerge. That's funny. So I guess I don't know about this dude, but I do know about this. You know, they had that big debate on uh, delayed second dose versus second right. dose, right? Whether or not you had to get two doses, blah, blah, blah. Marty um, weighed in on that too. Yeah, Marty weighed in on, yeah. he was delayed second dose? Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. And Bob Walker, the chairman of medicine yep. at UCSF, delayed second dose, Ashish Jha, uh, Brown, dean of public health, delayed second dose. But they were equally prominent people on the other end of the spectrum. Sure. Yeah. Including they, Offit, he doesn't think it should be. He doesn't yeah. think, okay. Yeah. So there's, you know, yeah. so people you respect on both sides. Yeah. Um, and I and, and one of the arguments is like, you can model, like, what do you think the, the number of people will die under different strategies will be? And there's been at least to my knowledge, three different models of that. One was in the annals of internal medicine. Um, then the next thing you're thinking, you can be like, what is the probability of vaccine escape? or vaccine re- partial resistance or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I got it, I got into that literature a little bit because I was kind of, I, I never really took a strong side in this. Yeah, me neither. 
I think now that I look at all the data, I probably would, if I had gun to my head, I would lean towards the delayed second dose, but mm-hmm. you know, we'll find Be very it. subtle, yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, I looked into that thing of like, you know, and I would say that it's a lot of, I mean, th- there's a lot of speculation when it comes to like, um, uh, which of these vaccination strategies would increase the probability that some uh, replicating viral strain uh, I- evolves some partial or total resistance and that propagates itself into the future? Um, which strategy is better or worse for that? That's a, that's, a, that's a couple bits of daisy chaining of a bunch of reasoning. And, yeah. and so I would say, you know, I, I didn't reach a strong conclusion. I felt like, okay, there's a little bit of speculation in all directions, um, but that's a fine debate to have. Um, yeah. Well, but see, that's important saying, yeah, we can't really know. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can't really, like, I think actually Emily Oster makes another point, which is like, is the risk to an unvaccinated child the same as a vaccinated grandma? And I think like, I think the harder thing for people to admit is not that she's right, not that she's wrong, it's that she might be right, she might be wrong. And the best we can do is probably get it within, you know, a, a big range. Exactly, exactly. And and that's all right too. That's and one, one thing you pointed out when you have experts on both sides that are quite reputable, that's when you really have to go, boy, I don't know if this is answerable with our current data set. I, I'll add one more thing. I think you're right. And I think that if we didn't, if we had not politicized SARS-CoV-2, yeah. there would have been more experts on both sides of more issues. Yeah. For instance, the school's issue, there were a lot of people who oh, were great qu- who questioned school closure in the fall. There were some vocal proponents. Oh, this person who disagrees with me, he said that it's fine to close schools. I disagree. Yeah. Um, that would have been a more live debate if we didn't create this culture of, now you're a right-wing nut if you yep. want to close schools. Or if right. you, if you, you're a right-wing nut if you want to open them. Sorry, sorry, open right. them. Yeah, 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 if you right. want to open them, you're right. right if nut. you want to keep them closed forever, you're left. And why should that even be? Because Stupid. we politicized it? And then I would say hydroxychloroquine. Oh, another great example. So, so the folks on the right liked it. And then folks on the left, what they should have done is be silent. Yeah. Let the trials run. Yeah. But they started saying like, you take one hydroxychloroquine, you get QT prolongation and boom, yeah. RNT phenomenon, you're Nonsense. dead. Okay, yeah. so they pushed the harms and that made it harder for the trials run as well. Uh, that was another foolish politicization. Doesn't need to have to be, didn't have to go there. Um, masks, you know, prudent to do precautionary principles, some sort of bioplausible data to support it. Uh, Danish mask study. We could have run some cluster trials. We didn't, but there's going to be one from the Guinea that comes out hopefully in the fall. Mm. Um, you know, it's something that we could have had more nuanced about. We could have talked like, we really wanted, let's focus on inside. Let's let people outside, let them have a little, you know, we really don't know. Um, you know, WHO says don't mask kids under five. Uh, CDC says two. You yeah. know, they're, just, they're slightly different. So there's some equipoise there. Um, WHO says you don't need it when you exercise. CDC says, yes, do it if you exercise. You know, so if you exercise outdoors, so there's differences there. You know, we did, we never, we it got so politicized and it became identity. And then um, it's so much easier to say, you're a bad person, you didn't wear your mask. You're a good person, you did wear a mask. Rather than, oh, that line, that guy who's cooking our food that we're getting through Uber Eats, well, he doesn't have an N95 in the kitchen and the other guy has fevers. He has to go because if he doesn't go to work, his wife and kids are not gonna get food this month. Uh, that's nobody wants to talk about it. You know, nobody so, wants yeah. to talk about it. It's 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 absolutely true. You see, there was a recent article in, in San Jose Mercury News. They got uh, access to the Slack channel discussions among all the Bay Area public health officials. What do they say? Oh, it was fascinating. Oh, okay. So it was from the early days, and they were going like Erica Pan and and uh, Morrow here in San Mateo and so on, and they had no clue what was going on oh. because they had such incomplete information, and they were suddenly given ridiculous amounts of power and making decisions that were affecting millions of 8 million people in the Bay Area. And at one point they said, okay, so it's we're gonna limit people to 30 outside and this many. And so Scott Morrow just asks in the thread, so what's the science behind this? 
Is he the San Mateo He's guy? a San Mateo guy. He wrote that long, beautiful letter. He's right? brilliant. He wrote this letter. I, I mean, I, I read it a long time ago, but my gist of reading it was- um, He's got it, a big beard. Yeah, yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think I looked at a picture of him when he- when I, the, 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 the gist of it was he was completely honest about what he knew and what he didn't yeah, know. Right? That was the letter. Scott. Yeah. yeah, I think his name is Scott uh, Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. He, I reached out to his office uh, a few months ago to ask him to be on the show. Oh, he'd be good. Yeah, and they were like, oh, we can't really. That's another failure. Yeah, failure. Go on the shows, man. You're, you're the public health commissioner of the county? Yeah. Get would, on the show. You gotta talk it. to people. They <laughs> wouldn't do it, and I'm here. I live in your in your county. Dude, but, we have to yeah. talk for a side tangent briefly. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when someone doesn't wanna come on the show, uh, I, I understand if they think like, the, the platform is not worth their time. Right. But if they start making these other excuses, I have no it, You know, it wasn't, I don't think it was Scott. I think it was his PR people. Who are yeah. these people? Be, they're horrible people. Yeah, so I'm going to say this right now. PR people are garbage people. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say this because I hate it. If you, okay, I'm going I'm to look right at the camera. If you are somebody who has a, a dumbass book coming out or you're trying to self-promote and you sick your fucking PR person on me, I will delete the email and never, ever will you get to be on my show, ever. <laughs> I hate PR people. Um, I hate the fact that you resort to them to get on my show. I hate the fact that you're so inauthentic that you need a PR person. I hate everything about you. Uh, that's just me and I'm triggered. Well, yeah. I feel the same way and I probably get a fraction of the request to come on plenary session. Oh, I'll come on. <laughs> I'm always begging to be on the show. <laughs> get you there, yeah. Your podcast is awesome, dude. Well, I mean, you, you, you're the next... I still see you as like, I mean, we're 10 years frame shifted off each other, right? You are a vastly smarter and better version of me. So when I die of my massive MI from just angst, <laughs> I just, as I'm dying, I'm gonna be like, tell Vinay, take over. <laughs> just hand him the mic. <laughs> he can have the camera. Wait, what? No, yeah. the camera's going to my daughter to make TikTok videos. Oh, is it? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the feedback I get on my videos is like, this is this is like filmed in a bunker. It's a <laughs> shitty camera, shitty sound. Yeah. You know, that's how I know you're a really good scientist and thinker, that your camera is garbage. <laughs> because if, if, again, if it's like your angles are bad, we were talking about this before yeah, the show, yeah, I was looking yeah. at your stuff. But the content is amazing. Well, the fact that people acquired taste. still engage. No, I don't think so. It's, uh, like, it's not like Mulberry Street. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe if you dressed in stereotypical Indian garb. Yeah, like the Raja on top Like of the, the Raja on a big blue elephant. Yeah. Uh, everything with the curly cues and everything. You need all that. Yeah, I forget how it looked. Yeah, yeah it, it was pretty racist. Yeah, it probably was. But, uh, yeah. but still, I mean, in 1930. 1930, I mean, there's practically, I mean, come, come on, on, dude. Yeah. I was like, look at. Watch Temple of Doom. That yeah. was 1980. 80 something. 80 something. It's it so racist. Kalima, it takes Kalima yeah. rips out. Of course, at least it was a legit Bollywood actor playing that guy. But still, and the whole thing. I what about Ben Kingsley as Gandhi? Oh, right? 81. It's right? brown face. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, God, and that won an Academy Award. Yeah. And, and, and that was you, 80s. This guy's 37. It's crazy. And, and, you know, my dad, I remember we watched Temple of Doom in the theater, and my dad came out at the time. My dad came out and he's like, you know, we don't eat insects and rip the hearts out of people. Like that yeah. was just frankly disgusting. Oh, and, and this I, was I got in the it 80s. In, I got it in school. Yeah. Oh, people man. were like, after watching that movie. Yeah. Oh, really? People were like, oh, is that what it's like? And I was like, You're like no, uh, no. no. It's yeah. Quite it's an better than that. <laughs> like, we'll, better. We'll, we'll pull your spleen out because we <laughs> know. Better. And I love how the wound just closes. I'm like, God, the guy'd make the best surgeon in the world. Like he rips the heart. I watched it recently, it was on like TV. I was like, this is 
a garbage movie. He's like a Da Vinci robot. He, just he is, he is. He's like, <laughs> shook the day, Calimar. And then it lights on fire. I, I and the, the best, the, there's a scene, it's it's on fire and it's this plastic heart and it's burning. And you just see his face and he's like, ah, 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 ah. and he's a bald guy like me. And I'm like, one day I will be that guy. That's going to be me, Calimar. Um, still love the theme song of that whole thing. It was like, it has just enough, like, you know, Middle Eastern elements to make it racist. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a memory. Dr. Jones. <laughs> Remember Short Round? That was the other kid. Oh my God, your so, memory, you're oh blowing my me God. away. No, I'm telling you, I just saw it. The little Vietnamese kid, and he's like, oh, Dr. Jones, Dr. You're like, dude, that's racist. <laughs> like that nowadays. But still, the movie doesn't hold up at all. I see. But it's still entertainment. So you can watch it and suspend your racial disbelief and just enjoy it. Yeah, that's the... That's how you, I mean, it's a better way to take these things. I suppose. I think Short Round, the actor who played Short Round was in uh, the zombie series, uh, what's it called, Walking Dead. Was he? I, I heard that. I may be wrong. I, I say a lot of apocryphal shit, man. It's... No, I got to check that out. I mean, I, I feel like I watched most of The Walking Dead until yeah. uh, until ne Negan got a little too, <laughs> too much for me to take. Negan. Well, well, shit, man, we went like an hour and something. I know one's going to watch it. So yeah. Now but we can say whatever we now want. Now we can say whatever we want. Okay, so the period. thing about Seuss. Yeah. Yeah. Free free period. The free period. The free yeah. period. Right, what would we talk about in free period? This is for the bonus. This is for the people who no, are go deep. I don't, I don't even we, know. We, we did all the things we wanted. We kind of did everything. Yeah. Oh, the, the, oh, yeah. No, we can't even talk about that JAMA guy because it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. That's a whole nother, whole nother shit show. I don't know, Vinay. I think I'll say this. We can end with a positivity. Let's end with positivity. The fact that these discussions get any views at all tells me that people are are waiting for the next emergent in our sort of collective consciousness, which is, okay, okay, we went a little crazy there for a second. That's interesting. Um, I think now we can integrate this better and understand like truth is found in parts and we can have civil conversations and we'll fix social media. So like you said, maybe it's breaking up Facebook, maybe it's uh, coming up with competitors, maybe it's unplugging for a bit, maybe it's teaching our kids critical thinking, maybe it's God knows what, another awakening, whatever it is, I don't care what it is, but it's coming. Ah, that's well put. I guess my only closing thoughts are, um, you know, I, I don't even care if it's not civil. I was like, <laughs> you can be nasty. I mean, I guess I'd say like the things that you gotta diminish this idea that like, like they shouldn't even, if they took away, you couldn't even visibly see followers or likes or retweets the numbers, you'll already disincentivize that. Like, yeah. so you're not just chasing the sensational. Uh, you gotta be very careful about censoring people and telling yeah. people, yeah. And you, you gotta not tell people you're an economist, you shouldn't even talk. Yep, uh, that, credentialism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not not helpful. Uh, and, 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 and you gotta say like, uh, we're, we're, we're not gonna like ban the sale of, you can buy Mein Kampf on eBay, but you can't buy Mulberry Street, right? Like right. some. Can this, you buy Mein Kampf? On I think eBay? yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. I think you can so, buy it on Amazon. Yeah. So what are we doing exactly? <laughs> if you're going to censor something, which it, you shouldn't, I don't even think you censor a Mein Kampf. Let I people, guess I mean it censors yeah. itself because I have never read it. It does. I, yeah, I haven't read I it. Written. I, I, I would have it. no desire. I have no desire. I, by all accounts, it's like poorly written as well. In addition to all yeah, the problems, yeah. failed like, artist, failed writer, poor failed dictator. Failed human being. But like, what I did read that was really stellar was the Volrich Ulrer, uh, or no, Volker Ulrich, his name's Volker Ulrich, Hitler, two-part biography came oh. out, um, finally translated into the English as of September of last year. It was good? Oh, 
stellar. Wow. Stellar. I mean, it's like a like the con. It's like the definitive biography. Two parts. Wow. But I think it's like almost. It's like two thousand pages. So you it's came a, away from it learning something new about about the whole Western civilization. Oh, I mean, wow. I think you learn. It's not just about the man. It's about how the times make the man. The right, man makes right, the times, right, and right, it's how. Right, right. And the I Nietzsche think, Superman, the yeah. Ubermensch, and yeah. Very interesting, yeah. Wow, fascinating. Really interesting, yeah. I've been, I've been listening to more, since Jordan Peterson had that whole spell where he you know, had the benzo thing and yeah, was, was hospitalized. Benzos, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it was more than that. I think he really was struggling with mental illness and so on. I've been watching some of his stuff as he's come back and it's really interesting to watch the is change it, in- Is it different? It, he's different. Um, I think he's still he's still quite persuasive and amazingly <clears throat> smart guy, but you know, he's less strident about certain things. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, he does his own podcast now and he interviews people and uh, it's really, it's a, you know, trying to get a diversity of thought is is kind of important. You know, like you really have to look at all these ideas and hear counter arguments and incorporate them and understand them and before you can speak really intelligently. You know, when, when Seema Yasmin was on the show, she was talking about Dunning-Kruger. I mean, seems like our whole society is learns a little about something and thinks they're experts now. <laughs> seems to be the thing. We have to have a humility in the face of our lack of understanding of anything. Yeah. yeah, and that sometimes it's the folks you disagree with who give you the best ideas for how you advance your cause. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Really, you need you know, a good, worthy opponent you need a good, to worthy trigger opponent. your thinking yeah, you and clarify it. Yeah. It, it's really true. You know, that, that that's actually why I kind of like this, uh, again, getting back to this Basha guy. He, he well-spoken, articulate scientist, great. Now let's talk about what he's saying. Yeah, the, wonderful, that's what you want. Um, he's wrong, by the way, um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so I think we did a thing. Guys, check out Vinay's uh, Plenary Session podcast. Uh, I'm get the give, books before they're banned. Get the books before they're banned for selling <laughs> less than 5,000. <laughs> Malignant. I'm actually surprised that you haven't made more enemies that would get your books banned. That's interesting. You know, I mean, once you start going on the book banning route, I guess, I mean, my books probably threaten more billion dollars of annual sales. And it's like Marty's book, The Price We Pay, was basically taking on the medical industrial complex and saying, you're suing poor people for inflated bills oh, right, that are yeah. completely untransparent. Yeah. I read that book, like Malignant, same thing. You read it and you get really angry mm. because it's pointing out truths that most people don't know. <clears throat> And they're emotionally relevant truths to us as humans, which is key. It's like one thing is like, well, you know, the price of oil is inflated artificially by these various cartels. Okay, who cares? Yeah, the, they're foisting on you a $20,000 cancer drug per dose that is not gonna improve the quality of your life, even if it extends it. And there's all these conflicts in how it was even approved. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well. I guess we're, we're done. But the last thing I'd say is like, you know, April 27th, 28th, mm. there's a, and 29th, I think three days of ODAC where they are looking at six drug approvals that failed to meet post-marketing commitments. So perhaps my my complaining has heard, has been oh, heard because great. they might revoke some of these approvals. So Wouldn't we shall that say, be something? It would be something. They've been very reluctant to do it. Not since uh, Avastin in, I think 2012 was the last wow. time. Wow. That they was, had an ODAC to do. Right, right. Was Zygris uh, ever de-approved? Yeah, sepsis? I think Eli Lilly voluntarily withdrew voluntarily Zygris. Voluntarily yeah. withdrew. Yeah. Zygris, after their confirmatory study, did not confirm what they thought. Yeah. Right. It, science is difficult, especially when there are conflicts. Mm. It's difficult anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And COVID oh. is worse. There's conflicts. Yes, me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, love you guys. 
Hey, join us on Locals, man. Uh, ZDogMD.Locals.com. If you want to throw, this this is a new pitch that I have that has been so wonderful because this is what people do. I go, if you want to put a, like a like a dollar in the tip jar or whatever, paypal.me forward slash ZDogMD, you can do a one-time donation. You get nothing but a personal thank you email from me. So what people do is they'll send like 20 bucks and they'll write, here's what I think about what you're doing. And it may be positive, it may be constructive, it may be hateful, but it's always relevant because they're actually paying to get my attention. And so I always respond. And it's actually a great way to interact with people uh, that care enough that they're willing to throw a couple bucks at you. So thanks you guys, love you, share the video, and we are out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.